are you ready for season three of Discography? Yeah! We're jumping into the deep end of The Who. Not only will we go through every Studio Who album in great detail, but their story is often told between albums, so we'll be touching on non-album singles, the solo works of Keith Moon, John Entwistle, Roger Daltrey, and Pete Townsend, and some of the events that would make a record begin as a concept and land as something that would universally change the world. Discography returns to Consequence Podcast Network in January of 2019. Until then, be lucky. Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. All in the name of hope. All in the name of hope. All in the name of hope. Greetings. Dirty birdies, and welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast from the Consequence Podcast Network. Uh, we hope you're doped up and cozy in bed because we are here to talk about Stephen King's 1987 novel, Misery. My name is Rockin' Randall Colburn, and uh, you might know me from previous episodes of this podcast, as well as my work on consequenceofsound.net and the AV Club. Uh, welcome. It's the new year. Uh, it is the new year, and this is our first episode of the new year. We're ringing it in with, I'd say, one of Stephen King's most popular books. I would say so, too. That's some good timing, I but think. But you know what? Last year, we rang in uh, 18 with one of his most popular books, too. Which one? Yeah. Christine. You remember that? Vroom, oh, vroom. I really do. Vroom, vroom. Vroom, vroom. So, But this is 2019, which is very exciting, because that's the year of King. Yes, it is. 19. He's been working his entire career up to this year. <gasps> it's also the year of the pig, which is relevant. Piggy, oh, piggy. wow. Yeah, misery. Wait, are we talking about Dan Caffrey? No, Piggy. No! <laughs> Sorry. Um, Our Lord and Savior, Dan Caffrey, who watches above us in the studio. <laughs> uh, so welcome. Uh, we're excited to be here. A few things, a few housekeeping things before we get started and introduce uh, a special person who is returned to us from the wilds of the Midwest, and uh, and then a new guest that we are happy to have on, and then, of course, us old farts uh, who you know and love. But uh, yeah, so first, we just want to give you an update on our back catalog because a lot of you have been asking hey where's our back catalog hey, where are the episodes where are the episodes look i woke up this morning and those episodes just aren't there anymore yeah that we get that a lot and so we would just like to say that we're sorry but we are in the process of remastering all those old episodes uh, some of them the early ones were recorded in max's uh, dimly lit apartment in the winter of 2017 when we had one mic so it was a different time and we're trying to make the episode sound better and also just kind of updating uh, some of the sounds and, and things of that nature and trying to level out some of the audio things like that we just want to make it sound better for you and, so and we're gonna roll them out like uh, how Disney does with the vault exactly we're rolling it's them coming out coming like, out from the vault we're, we're doing it from the vault so we've this already is rolled for out you yeah. <laughs> we've already rolled out our skeleton crew episodes our pet cemetery episodes no no, not the yet. Well, they will. Be oh, out I thought soon. Pet Cemetery was. No, nah, I had to hold those back a little bit. But oops, we they will be out. They're that's very that, long. That, that yes, is the next book that we're going to be uh, rolling out. Cool. So well, yeah, there are there are several that are back there, but also I think, but we do have everything like through the summer that is. Yes, available. all of our Castle Rock coverage is out there. So if you haven't watched Hulu's Castle Rock, 
It's a good time uh, to do, do it. it. And then listen to all those episodes. Well, you've got we our drawing of the three episode. We have, got we have the gunslinger. gunslinger. We've got, we got Christine. Christine is uh, out. We also have um, all, all our it coverage. All of our it all coverage. Eight which, episodes. Which was, we didn't do eight. We did eight. We did oh, eight. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. I didn't even realize that. One mm-hmm. for each loser plus Pennywise. Jesus yep. Christ. What's yep. wrong with us? And Pennywise is technically part of the Losers Club. Yeah. No. I agree. Um, so definitely a loser. So yes. yeah, just just be patient. We're going to keep rolling them out. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll have them out soon. Uh, it's a lot of work, though. Because, hey, guess what? We talk a lot. We do talk a lot. And you like that. And that's why uh, we created a, a real trap for ourselves when we released that three and a half hour episode of Carrie two years ago. <laughs> but <laughs> we, we just want to make sure every episode is the same general quality. General right? quality. It's going to be a good thing. It's true. So, I think so. And then also just want to take a moment to hop in right now and say, guess what? We still need iTunes reviews. We need them from you. But good ones, not bad ones. Yeah. If we get any bad ones... um. Let's just say uh, Annie Wilkes is out there. Yeah, Annie Wilkes is out there. And guess what? Annie Wilkes liked it when we talked about the Mighty Mighty Bostons for five minutes. She did. So She just went nuts and went to her laughing. She gave us a five-star review, so maybe you guys should also do the same. So head to iTunes, head to Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. Give us a positive review. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. As I always like to say, we post fresh content on each platform. We love fresh content. I love fresh content. Eat fresh. Yeah, eat fresh, and it's different on each platform. We don't just post the same garbage. We don't. Oh, we it's don't. curated and customized. It's curated and customized, and we engage in the comments. We have great um, memes, funny memes, great memes, Goodreads too. What was that? And Goodreads, yes. Goodreads. That's, that's, oh yeah, Goodreads. Justin Justo's, Gerber's just as uh, good about that. Yeah, he loves Just Justo. Just loves that Goodreads. I'm not good on Goodreads because guess what? Reading is for nerds. When I hear the word Goodreads, I always think of good guys from um, you know Child's Play. Wait, good good guy? Oh, like what? The good guy doll? Yeah. Like I see the font. I say good reads, oh. but it's not like kind of like childish font. Of Are you good excited guys. for the Child's Play reboot? Oh, I love Brian Tyree Henry, but um, let's just say I don't need a remake of uh, a seminal classic. This is still housekeeping. <laughs> but you know that you know that um, Don Mancini is also doing like another sequel. Oh, yeah, because he's continued this insane storyline. And he's really pissed off that they're doing a reboot. I know. He's, he's bummed out that, you know, people don't want to sit through four. If there's no Jennifer <laughs> Tilly, I'm not interested. <laughs> uh, that is true. I love Jennifer Tilly and I, and I love her uh, sister, Meg Tilly. Big chill. Great movie. Oh, yeah. I forgot she's in that. Okay. So anyways, that's our housekeeping. <laughs> um, again, my name is Randall Colburn. Uh, I am one of uh, the host of this of this illustrious podcast that you have continued listening to. This is like our two year anniversary. Two year anniversary. That's two really years exciting. ago, we were sitting around in Max' apartment, and I was uh, I was very cold because yeah, it, was it was a chilly. cold winter. That it was year. a cold winter, mm-hmm. uh, cold snap. Cold and snap. Um, hey, it's cold in this book too. It is uh, lots of snow. Yeah, luckily um, I'm not going to go there. Uh, lots so, of snow uh, made with lots of snow, if you know what I mean. I agree. Um, so who's sitting across from me, and how the hell are you? This is Michael Misery's return, Rothman. Ah, you had a little uh, bit there. I, I did. It was it was a fun little bit, and I had a you know I had a lot of fun doing it. Uh, I'm editor in chief and president of Consequence of Sound, and uh, also a constant contributor to this podcast. And in addition to Halloweenies, um, uh, Michael Myers. No, a uh, Freddy Krueger podcast That's this right. year. We're heading to Elm Street, and uh, it's been a long, big move from Haddonfield to Springwood, Ohio. So, Ohio. So people will be able to access those episodes via the same feed. Yes, the same feed. You don't even have to do anything. You just so, sit there and wait for it to change So is over. it still, if they want to find the podcast, do they still search Halloweenies? Yes, you could find it through Halloweenies. That's the nice thing. Is like, And you could find it through Freddy Krueger. Yeah, but the nice thing is... 
Halloweenies doesn't just need to be about Halloween. It can be about anything spooky. It is, and, and it can. Uh, so it ended up being kind of a good podcast name. It was a good, fun podcast uh, given by my ex-wife. So um, All right, it was let's fun. move on. <laughs> no, it, it's just a fact. It's just a fact. It's just uh, a fact. It's just a fact. How was your 2018? Uh, my 2018 was, um, I guess I could say, tumultuous. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. all you're going to give me? That's all I'm going to give you. But, okay. Uh, uh, that's okay. And how did you first encounter Misery? Uh, my first encounter with the book was through Rob Reiner's film. Ah. I actually, this is my first time reading it. I just never got to reading this novel. When even did you though see I've the movie? seen the movie a thousand times. I saw it as a kid. I I honestly was trying to think if I saw it in theaters or if I saw it like maybe like the first weekend it came out uh, on like VHS. Uh, I just have vivid memories watching it as a kid because I do feel that like my I'm from South Florida. So seeing like this like wintry tale on screen was so alien to me. Like Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, even just like being bedridden when you have the flu in South Florida, you still go outside, you still do all these things like so it was just it was just such a surreal sort of story for me as a kid. And I have like really, really vivid memories of watching this film at that time. Uh, plus, I love Rob Reiner. Uh, yeah, you know. So, do you really? I love Rob Reiner and I love James Caan, so I can't wait to talk about this movie. So, you don't love Kathy Bates? I do love Kathy Bates, but uh, <laughs> Kathy Bates terrifies me in this movie. So. She's very scary, and it's crossed over into other movies because of it. So, wow. yeah. Um, who's sitting next to you, and where the hell have you come from to be here today? This is Mel Cockadoodie Castle. Yes, <laughs> and I came from Iowa City, where I currently live. But this is my. I don't know, my home base, really. I lived in Chicago for more than 20 years, so it's lovely to be back. We're so happy to have you here. I'm so happy to be back in the studio. Yeah, this is the first time you've been back in the studio since... August or yeah it would it would have been in the summer it was an it episode wasn't it oh well I've been on episodes remotely yeah remotely but your last in-person was I think it was the mist wasn't it my last oh no maybe it was it was no you know what I I know it was it was skeleton crew part two because we had just uh we had just edited that episode and we have some like losers club clip from it that when we we sent you off and all well we're happy to have you here uh how was your 2018 how was school 2018 was crazy. I mean, it was a it was a time of transformations, a time of new beginnings. I moved. I got into grad school. I'm getting my MFA at the Iowa Writers Workshop, um, which, as a fan of Stephen King, did not think that would ever happen. But yeah. so that's cool. Um, it's been so nice to move somewhere where the pace is a little slower. The town is much smaller. I'm really leaning into it. Yeah. Uh, not as much as our poor protagonist does in this <laughs> book. Um, and I have to say that I'm probably being less productive writing wise. So, you know, maybe I just need a good hoblin. But, uh, <laughs> hoblin. I, With no G. It's been, it was a good year. And I, everything kind of started up and I did one semester. And now it's kind of like, what is this whole experience going to be like in Toto? So, mm-hmm. Hey, it was Toto, very exciting. I always associate that phrase with Harold Lauder in the stand. I always associate that phrase with Africa, uh, which is I plays a big part. Oh, you mean Weezer's Africa? Africa? Weezer's Africa, great, mm. great song. Mouth uh, so, just like rolled her rolled her eyes because we started doing a bit. I did. I didn't even know I was doing it. It's so instinctual at this point. Also, by the way, this is the first time I've been back, as we've mentioned, and the studio looks incredible. Yeah, there's been a lot of... These guys have really remodeled and just given the place a really homey feel. Um, There's a great spider gremlin on the wall. There's posters everywhere. From you. Christmas and Halloween lights. Um, The spider gremlin is yours, so you should say hi to it. Hi, spider gremlin. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, it's it's very cozy, unlike (laughs) the room that Paul Sheldon sits in in Misery, which feels very claustrophobic. So, so. Mel, when did you first encounter Misery? I... 
I'm pretty sure that my first introduction to Misery was like a VH1 list of most brutal moments in horror films yeah. where they show the scene, um, which is different in the book, Yeah, uh, where Annie Wilkes does some very bad things to Paul Sheldon's legs. Yeah. Um, and from then on, I was very interested in this story. I don't think I saw the film until after I read the book, though. I pursued the book first because I was already into Stephen King at that mm-hmm. point. And then I definitely also remember seeing the photo, fo- the still photo of like her looking down. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah. So I have a pastiche of images associated with this. But again, it was the book first, then the movie. I I like both of them very much. And is this your second read? This is probably my third read. Whoa. Nice. Yeah. That beats me. Um, and so we have a, a brand new loser we're here to introduce today that we're very excited to have on. She is a friend. She's a filmmaker. She is a writer. She used to be my boss. She used oh, to be yeah, Mel's boss. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> and, and she is sitting to my left, and your name is? Lara. Lara Unterstall. Um, it's a long last name. It's German. I hate it. I'm sorry. I disagree. I think it's a great last name. Uh, I would almost say uh, Laura Funnerstall. Yes, um, that is how I often go. I, I, I try to put the fun back into Unnerstall. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty much my goal. Uh, tell us a little bit about your relationship to horror and specifically Stephen King. Yeah, so I'm a huge horror fan. Um, I am a filmmaker. I'm trying to make horror films now. I've completed one horror short. In my past, I did more kind of like wacky comedy trash films. Um, but I am obsessed, obsessed with horror movies and Stephen King has been sort of a spectral presence in my life for as long as I can remember. Um, my mom read him and so those paperbacks were always around the house. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the first one I read was it when I was way too young to read it and (laughs) comprehended like point. Zero zero one percent of it. Um, That's a running theme on this podcast. Yeah. We all we all read it a little too early. Yeah, and it I don't know. It did did something to me. I don't know what. Um, but it it was the one with uh, Tim Curry on the cover. It was like the miniseries mm-hmm. tie in paperback. Um, and I had a huge crush on Tim Curry at the time. Um, for reasons I don't completely understand because I was Rocky about Horror six or seven. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's just, a confusing time in a child's life. Yeah, it was like foreshadowing. Um, so yeah, uh, that that was and I and I watched the miniseries uh, repeatedly, and then the Stand miniseries yes. came oh, out, yeah. and I think I also read the Stand when I was way too young to read it. I think I was. It was more like, wow, these books are really big. I'm really going to do this to myself. Because as you know, I was a very popular child, if this is any indication <laughs> of how that went for me. Um, yeah. And I just, I got really, I got really into it. It did spark. It was one of the things along with like Pee Wee Herman and yes. Beetlejuice, which, you know, sort of indicated my future tastes. What is your relationship to Misery? So this was my first time reading the novel. I definitely saw the movie probably again when I was too young. I don't really know what was going on there with that theme. Um, but my grandma looked almost exactly like Kathy Bates. Uh, so I loved Kathy Bates. To me, she was like, my grandma's on, on TV. Uh, <laughs> what a sweet, fun thing to have. Uh, and I don't totally remember the first time I saw it. I remember, I think I saw like a TV edit of it and I was terrified. I'm extremely claustrophobic. Uh, it was definitely, I know I was too young to see it and it scared the hell out of me. Um, everything about it. So I've seen the movie a handful of times in in my adulthood as well. Uh, This was my first time reading the book, though. And um, not surprisingly, it made me extremely claustrophobic because (laughs) I am extremely claustrophobic. Same. When was the last time you watched the movie? 
It was years ago, yeah. though. I, I I thought about rewatching it like this week in preparation for the podcast, but I thought, no, I'm gonna get through the entire book and then I'm going to have a sit down and and do my nerdy side by side and and think. <laughs> I am very curious to rewatch it because the book is so much about books that seeing it as a movie is intriguing. Yeah, it, no, that's a good point actually. And and what's also interesting is like I. I think it's if I can recall because I haven't seen it in a, in a few years either, and I recall it being pretty faithful. But I honestly, while reading this, had no idea where the ending was going to go. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. which even even just basing it on the movie, like I I, kind of, I remember what the the final shots are of the movie and everything, but I didn't realize like how he was going to get out of the house. Right, mm-hmm. um, and I thought that was kind of interesting too because I, I it was just there, there's something about um, the the way I guess like the way that this I feel like this book is presented as like it would be hard to actually adapt certain parts of this to the actual screen. So I'm I'm interested to go back and rewatch this now. Uh, Here's a weird story. I thought I'd seen the movie until like this past week. And then when I kind of, I was reading the book again, I'd read the book before I I just started like thinking about the film and I was, I was reading some stuff about the film and I realized I'd never seen it. I I'd I'd only seen like when Mel mentioned the VH one lists, like, I'd seen the key scenes as they replayed on shows and stuff. And I knew all the iconic images and the trailer images like of Kathy Bates and everything in the movie, but it just somehow slipped out and I never read it, but I, or I never uh, watched it. So it's totally random for me. Like, I just don't remember anything about it except for the scenes that I saw, which helped me realize I'm like, Oh my God, I've never seen it. I always thought I had. Well, that's like, that's interesting though, because I, I, I do feel that like that, also applies with the shining mm-hmm. for a lot of people like yeah. people who have never seen that film could tell you pretty much beat for beat what happens mostly because some of the most iconic scenes of that mo- movie happen to just be the biggest narrative beats in that yeah. film yeah and um and i do wonder like now if yeah if misery is that case for that most for most people because i mean they've used it so much in pop culture mm-hmm. even down to like like parodies like that that people have yeah. done um, yeah the parodies too i think are part of it like I'd, I'd seen so many parodies and the story is so easy easy to grasp mm-hmm. you know it's such an elevator pitch kind of book where it's just kind of like obsessive fan kidnaps this guy breaks his legs and um kind of holds him hostage to write something for her and that to me i guess is like you know it's not like there's an intricate like there's a lot of intricacy to the book, but the plot itself is fairly straightforward. And so I guess I always thought that um, because of that, I'd seen the movie. So I'm actually excited to rewatch it um, in advance of next week's episode where we're going to talk about the movie and the uh, stage adaptations. Because uh, there's been two separate stage adaptations of this play. So intriguing. I yeah. wish I had seen any of them. One of which Bruce Willis yeah. starred in. Oh, wow. With Laurie, the- with Laurie Metcalf. Yes. Yeah. What? Yeah, Sorry, it was I'm like still, in, uh, I guess I could see it, but I mean, I don't know. So, mm, yep. I love the idea of Bruce Willis. Movies. I'm currently writing a musical for for Misery, actually. A musical? Oh yeah. Somebody actually nice. wrote like an opera of it, like in Germany or something. I could see that working. Maybe it was opera, one of your actually. ancestors. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's. Uh, okay. Well. <laughs> um, so yeah. So anyways, but I first read this. I, I just remember I, I a lot of Stephen King books for me like happened in a very like trim period of time where I just became really obsessed with him and I would go to the library, check out whichever one looked intriguing that I hadn't read yet. So I read like, you know, man, just I'd say like a lot of his mid eighties to early nineties work. I like read like Tommy knockers, Rose matter, Gerald's game, this, um, you know, I read all of them and this kind of furious burst maybe over like six months. Cause I just kept checking them out, going home, reading them like in my room at night. And so like so, Paul Sheldon. Yeah. Wait, no, no, no. in your no. room alone at night. Eh, 
Okay, whatever. You're, you're stretching it. Stretching a little bit. <laughs> um, so, but I'll say that Misery I remember reading and I really liked it. Although I I was really young. I was probably like 14, 13. And um, I remember hating the Misery sections where it's like oh. actually the, the <laughs> book. And I was like, why are we getting so much of this? I definitely forgot how much is in there. Well, King loves to do that. I mean, if you think about Stand By Me, it's like all the, um, the, the sections from gordy's book the like about the the latino couple or whatever like i'm just yes yeah it's like it goes there's on so forever. much of it in that book and uh it's like well we're gonna prove that this protagonist is a writer by showing you one of his short stories well, I always so feel like like these are maybe don't like, believe me yeah, exactly <laughs> well in those instances like in the dark half too you see a lot of sections from uh the different novels that the two personalities oh write. i can't wait it's good but no but the thing is like there i remember digging it because it was more like pulpy crime stuff and uh i felt like they were they were kind of like aborted stories that King had been working on. And he just kind of took the scraps and used them, you know, in this. And I was wondering, and I felt like he did that with uh, Stand By Me as well. But I wonder if, because I can't imagine King writing this kind of book or, you know, like even starting it and abandoning it and mm-hmm. using the scraps in this book. Like just the misery. I feel like that this was more him challenging himself to write like a Victorian romance novel or whatever. So, yeah, it's uh, I but I have a lot of thoughts on those sections. We'll talk about them later because this time I didn't skim through them like I did when I was a kid. Oh, that's good. So, uh, yeah. So I'm excited. Uh, why don't we all go around and say which edition of misery we read i'll start because i'm lame and i read the kindle edition uh because what can i say daddy loves his devices oh you've gone to digital huh oh yeah i'm a digital boy i'm a future boy so um (laughs) intel inside noted future boy noted future boy uh so i'm going to read the synopsis uh for that is on amazon.com where i bought this book uh paul sheldon is a best-selling novelist who has finally met his number one fan her name is annie wilkes and she is more than a rabid reader. She is Paul's nurse, tending his shattered body after an automobile accident. But she is also furious that the author has killed off her favorite character in his latest book. Annie becomes his captor, keeping him prisoner in her isolated house. Annie wants Paul to write a book that brings misery back to life, just for her. She has a lot of ways to spur him on. One is a needle, another is an axe. And if they don't work, she can get really nasty. Ooh, that's great. <laughs> so nasty. Miss Wilkes, um, if you're nasty. I will say, Laura, I the Kindle edition I have, I believe, is the same mm-hmm. as yours. So your synopsis might actually be very similar. Yes, it's the first Scribner trade paperback edition, January 2016. Uh, it has a blue cover with vivid red font for the title and an ominous cabin. Um, a little subtler than the lurid original paperback cover with uh, the silhouette of Annie yeah. and the axe. In the bedroom, so it, it leaves a little more to the imagination. I actually I like that cover a lot. I, I actually they're, really like it. Yeah, <laughs> I like it a lot. It reminds me of the. I think the the movie cover is very very similar to those editions. Sure. Look good. I like the 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 thick marker font. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think the original good the font. first one I read was the original hardcover that had the like didn't have the bed and the axe in it, and it it was in misery was written in red. Uh, I yeah, remember it being like a very brown, like uh, woody. It's well, it thing. shows the room. Yeah, yeah. The room. That's that's what we've. Uh, I have the first edition at home, and I just I don't like to leave. I don't like to travel around with them because I did that two years ago, and I ruined like three books yeah. doing that. Um, but yeah, like that's what uh, that's what Sam's been reading. Like she, she's and I, and I see the cover every time, and then I look at mine, and I'm like, eh. for well, a, for a pocket books cover though, it's it, not the worst. It's not the worst, but it's also well, just tell very us about like. It, Mike. You go for it. Okay. So you have the same we have one. The, oh, you we both the read same. the pocketbooks, Simon and Schuster edition, which came out, I think, in 2017. Um, it's it's pretty much just a corner of the room. We've got the bed with a coverlet and then an axe leaning against the bed. It looks like a small room. 
Um, I'm I'm fine with the font and kind of looks like an Airbnb. It does. <laughs> I mean, if if it weren't for the oh, axe, yeah. I would stay yeah. there. Yeah, it's like, like it looks fine, like three and a half stars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, what's this axe? Um, I like. I always love that they always have in any of these rooms that are pretty much just um, pointless guest rooms. Uh, everyone always feels the need to put like a chair. Yeah, that's you're not going to really sit in mm-hmm. like like and that's that's what I like kind of love about this cover too is like that nondescript like wooden chair that's sitting there next to the bed. So like if you like actually walked in the room, you're like, where should I go? Should I sit on the bed or should I sit on this 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 chair that looks really uncomfortable? I'm going to go for the chair. Like, no, there's always, I, I go home to my, like, grandmother's house or, like, my parents' house even, and there's always this one, like, area in a house I know that they've never sat in the entire time well, that they've like lived there. there's, like, that here. onion headline that's, like, a weird chair in the corner doing, or, like, uh, being brought into service this yeah. Thanksgiving or whatever. <laughs> and speaking, speaking of chairs and uh, spooky stories, I remember one time we th- I threw a Halloween um, party at my house or my apartment a few years ago. And someone had just left one of my dining room chairs in the middle of the room and, and just kind of sat it there. And I remember I was, I was like exhausted. So I was just sitting there working on the computer later that night. And I just see this chair in the middle of the room just sitting there. And I thought that I thought it was like one of the most chilling images for some reason. Yeah, right. Like, I don't know why it was, but either way. I just mean, in comparison to some of the pocketbook covers are so bad. Like, yeah. I was complaining about the one to carry the other day, which is just a skull hastily photoshopped onto a boutonniere and like, or a corsage. <laughs> that might yes. be better than the actual first edition cover for Carrie, though. It is the, the first edition cover for Carrie clearly shows that the publisher and the world had no idea who Stephen, what Stephen King was going to right. do. Because it's literally yeah. just a go. <laughs> yeah, that's the one I had as a kid that I read. Yeah, because my mom had it and it was really old and faded. And yeah. it, it was like where the color is like black and white and yeah. then another color maybe. And then the girl's face. Yeah, I remember wow, that's that. That's worth a lot of money now. You should do yeah, that. Should, I, I should follow. Well, I mean, because it? it, but it is in bad shape. I mean, wow. I remember I was like dog earing the pages at age like 10 or whatever it was that I was reading it. And yeah, it's not good. I ruined it. I <laughs> that, ruined my fortune. That I've done so much uh, damage to like first edition paperbacks. Uh, I didn't even realize I had them until halfway and I just like had marked it and like ripped things off. Yes. And I'm like, oh, oh, there goes at least like <laughs> mm-hmm. at least $80. Do you want to read your synopsis? Our um, synopsis? Yeah, I'll do what we want. You do. Uh, you go for it. Okay. <laughs> Best-selling novelist Paul Sheldon thinks he's finally free of misery, Chastain. In a controversial career move, he's just killed off the popular protagonist of his beloved romance series in favor of expanding his creative horizons. But such a change doesn't come without consequences. After a near-fatal car accident in rural Colorado leaves his body broken, Paul finds himself at the mercy of the terrifying rescuer who's nursing him back to health, his self-proclaimed number one fan, Annie Wilkes. Annie is very upset over what Paul did to Misery and demands that he find a way to bring her back by writing a new novel, his best yet, and one that's all for her. After all, Paul has all the time in the world to do so as a prisoner in her isolated house. And Annie has some very persuasive and violent methods to get exactly what she wants. King at his best. A winner. The New York Times. <laughs> unadulteratedly, unadulteratedly terrifying. What a fucking ridiculous, like, descript. Unadulteratedly. Yeah, don't make an adulteratedly <laughs> out of that word. And then they go, unadulteratedly terrifying, dot, 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 frightening. Frightening. <laughs> Uh, the Boston so Globe thinks it's classic King. and I don't know if you know this on the Globe. Boston's pretty close to King's Dominion, a.k.a. Maine. So maybe we should go with that. Coincidence? Uh, Coincidence? I think not. <laughs> yeah. um, well, that was fun. Let's talk about the history. Ah, yes. Don't you see? Don't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future, 
You can, I can change it. You can change it exactly. A rich history on display in this book, don't you agree? Oh, I would say so. A lot going on here because it's so clearly, I mean, we say this all the time about his books, like how clearly. Self-insert. Yeah, just like how personal they are. Like clearly there's a lot of himself that he puts into his books. But I'm going to go out here on a limb and say this is King's most metaphorical book yeah. in his oeuvre or whatever the hell you say that word. Yeah, like elaborate on metaphorical. I'll go all into it, but like I feel like you can make so many allusions to certain narratives Parts and certain in themes life. in right. his life. Yeah, and like Absolutely. I mean, I just think there's so many metaphors visually and like literally in this book. Uh, Despite him. He doesn't want to cop to it. Like, he'll no. be like, yes, okay, I was a writer, I was an addict, like, I get the connection, but a little bit of me is in every yep. character. Yeah, I saw that quote. Yeah. Yeah. He, like, said, he's like, oh, you know, people think Paul Sheldon is me, but, you know, there's a little bit of me in every book. And it's yeah. like, no, this is you, buddy. Yeah, like, I mean, <laughs> straight up you. Yeah, so. <laughs> totally, totally. Um, yeah, so I think that, let's start with sort of the nuts and bolts, which is that the book sort of, like, the actual process of how this book came to him, mm-hmm. which is, uh, he, I got some kind of a good thing here. He was... He was, it was in 1984, the summer of 1984, he was going to England, Mm -hmm. and he was on a plane, and he had a dream. Is this from Tor.com? Yeah. Yeah, That's what I was following. Well, Grady Hendrix, like, those those King Revisited pieces are always good to go and find some of the nitty-gritty of the history, so, but I've got some stuff. Hey, he's got a name of uh, the Overlook guy, Grady. Yeah. He also is a very good novelist. Um, But, so... But I would say that I, I got, you know, we're going to go beyond that. But just as kind of a good a good intro here. Uh, he was um, on a flight to England, fell asleep, had a dream about a popular writer who fell into the clutches of a psychotic fan. And he wrote down these notes on a cocktail napkin when he woke up. She speaks earnestly, but never quite makes eye contact. A big woman and solid all through. She is an absence of hiatus, whatever that means. Remember, I had just woken up. I wasn't trying to be funny in a mean way when I named my pig Misery. No, sir. Please don't think that. No, I named her in the spirit of fan love, which is the purest love there is. You should be flattered. And, uh, but then also, so there was that dream. But then also, I've also read that uh, the inspiration for Misery was also a short story that he read by Evelyn Waugh uh, called The Man Who Loved Dickens. And so, um, and that's about, it's a short story about a man in South America who's held prisoner by a chief who falls in love with the stories of Charles Dickens and makes the man read them to him. Um, and then King said, I wondered what it would be like if King, if Dickens himself was held captive. And then also, cause that's more please. And then, um, and then there's also the story of Mel Laura, you might be able to help me here. Shirazad? Shahrazad. Shahrazad. Thank you. Uh, You're yeah. both smarter than me, so I was like, "You'll be able to help." I just kept thinking of Schadenfreude. Um, yeah, because well, we're we're such dumbasses. That's a uh, good title, Scheherazade's Schadenfreude. Scheherazade. So, but yeah, so basically that story. Which Mel, do you know the Scheherazade? Yeah. Do you want to share? Arabian that with us? Nights is the story of Scheherazade. I think is married to an abusive, gross guy who's going to kill her, mm-hmm. and a king or something, or a lord. and she was forced into this mm-hmm. relationship. But as long as she can keep telling him a, an enticing, exciting story every night, I think it is continuation. Like, yeah. it's always like he needs to know what happens next. Um, she is granted her life. Uh, so it's just a story about stories, yep. yeah, as is this. That's how you get the 1001 mm-hmm. Arabian Nights. Right. Because there's that many stories. Because she goes, oh, and then it ends. And he's like, I'm going to kill you. And she goes, no. <laughs> I've got another story. <laughs> and and then he goes, oh, oh okay. And then, <laughs> then it just repeats ad nauseum. Uh, I like this vision. Forever. How does story? it end? 
I don't know. I can't remember because does it end? Is that isn't that is that not the point <laughs> that we it do does, not it, know? There's like some hook or twist ending that happens in in, in that. I think it has to do with like the, the she does some sort of um, ah. I'm not going to go literally on it because I don't know for sure, but I do believe it ends with something similar in this that he she uses the ending mm. to one of the stories to get to, like, out escape. of this, yeah, yeah, or something like that. So, um, so when he got to England, he was staying in a hotel and Brown's hotel. Is that what it was That's called? That's called, yeah. Brown's Hotel. Yeah, what a boring name for a <laughs> hotel. Like Poop's Hotel. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so basically he was hit with inspiration and the reception desk actually allowed him to go right at Rudyard Kipling's old desk, which they had there. The desk that I believe he died at. Oh, wow. Who initiated that conversation? Was he like, I need somewhere to write? And they were like, well, just so happens. Or was he like, I heard Rudyard Kipling's desk is yeah, here. Yeah, I feel like it might have been like, he knew, like, maybe they told him about it because they're like, oh, Stephen King's here. And then he's just like, hey, do you mind if I go right there? Because I just think he probably thought it would be cool. And then he wrote, like, 16 longhand pages. Uh, and he thought it was going to be a short story about where in the end, like, he was going to write this. This guy was going to write this story for this woman. And then she would uh, uh, bind it in, like, the pig skin. But then. No, in it, his skin. Well, no, but oh. she told him the pig skin. And then it would end with his skin, mm-hmm. which is would be kind of a, a groan worthy king short yeah toby hooper could make an adaptation for it yeah rob, rob reiner <laughs> so so yeah but then uh but then he said that paul ended up being more uh industrious than he initially thought he would be and it kind of turned into a novel so and also i think he he grew to really love the annie character or at least he he has always said that she's one of his favorite characters that he's written which is interesting well it was originally gonna be called the annie wilkes edition which yeah is kind of a cool name i actually but i don't think Obviously, there's the minimalism of misery in this is just perfect, and the double meaning for it is awesome too. So, so yeah, and then he said, "As sick with drugs and alcohol as I was much of the time, I had such fun with that one." He says of the book, um, and so, and then in this piece, I can't remember what this is from. This might be from the tour piece, but and when he says he was sick, he means that a normal human be a normal human would be dead. Reportedly sober for about three hours a day, King was guzzling beer and hoovering up cocaine at a staggering rate. Uh, and so, but then he kind of said that this book was about addiction. But here's the thing, and this is my theory, and this is the one thing that I want to hammer big time Bring on it. this episode, is that I don't, I, I think this is him contending with like his own connections to the horror genre. Because if you look back on our previous episode that we did, um, Non-Dark Tower, it, one of the things I really hammered on in that episode was how when he published it, he was this self-deprecating author that was going into you know interviews and just being like well i i lost it i don't have it anymore and clive barker is better than me and i'm done doing horror and i think he became so disenfranchised with horror because i mean look at the 80s was literally just them going like master of horror the yeah. horror guy spooky steven well, and, also that was in the midst you know, of his movies were starting to get really shitty about yes exactly and i think that you know he there's even elements of it with you know bill dumbro where he's you know he talks about a lot of these themes with his own uh past colleagues and he's there that that's a sort of resentment of like fuck you i i am a genre writer who gives a shit about yeah, that, that was a bit of a defense of it yeah and i and i think that like when we talked about that in that episode we talked about how like he he did want to distance himself from horror and i don't think it's any coincidence that literally it misery 
Tommy Knockers, Dark Half, all feature writers, like yeah. all feature writers that are dealing with the certain demons of it. Obviously, Dark Half is dealing with the whole Bachman pseudonym thing, which we'll talk about when we get to that episode. But I think with Misery, I think the actual Misery's return or Misery's the Misery series itself is Stephen like Paul Sheldon's relationship to his own Misery series is Stephen King's relationship to horror and him basically having to contend with the idea that well, am I just a writer because of horror? Do can I actually leave horror and yeah. still be a writer? and still get, move on i mean he the, obviously at this point when he goes into misery there's there's no i mean even when he started writing misery which was like what 84 i think yeah. it was he, he was already at that time like such a huge popular you know writer so like even him contending with the fame and fortune of this movie or i mean his own success is clearly in this novel but i do think it's deeper than that and i do think that it, it absolutely has to do with the fact that he felt like he was going to be boxed in forever mm-hmm. and boxed into a genre mind you, that is one of the more least respected genres at, at the time, at the time, maybe not, not now. Obviously well, you know anymore, what book but... came out in 1984, the year he started Misery? Go for it. Eyes of the Dragon. Yes. And, and he yes. received huge blowback because mm-hmm. people were like, why are you writing this fantasy bullshit? Yeah. So, I think, Mike, to this book does some like really interesting craft shit with that tension. Yes. Yeah. Um, I can't wait to get into that stuff. Yeah. Oh, but also this was going to be a Bachman book. Was it? It was. He I didn't was going see that. to publish it under the Bachman name, but the pseudonym was revealed before the book came out, oh. which is interesting. Like yeah. maybe he wasn't fully on his way, because I guess I I don't know if you agree with this theory, but it turns out at the end he sort of embraces his relationship to what he's known to write or his yeah. his yeah. persona as a horror writer in this case as a writer of the Misery series. Um, but to be under the Bachman name would be a sort of like hidden embracing. It would have mm. been right. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. And I think that um, I think that's it's all like a really good point, Mike. And it's definitely valid because I think that he was really rebelling against uh, the backlash he received for Eyes of the Dragon. But mm-hmm. then also just the idea that he was he felt he was being pigeonholed. And there's there's bits with Paul and we'll read them later because I'm sure you guys probably wrote it down, too, where Paul is just like, why don't you take my real work, you know, seriously yes. <laughs> and not like this fluff that I write. My real work about the car thief like, <laughs> i like fast cars. but that's the thing is like cars. i i cool. do i think fast cars is pretty much like his for lack of a better word sneak preview uh of what what he would be doing in the 90s i mean mm-hmm. if you look at his output in the 90s for the most part yeah they have some sort of like genre like spiritual horror aesthetic to it yeah but he's found a way to mutate it into different things and i would argue that like one of the reasons why he might actually reach that sort of conclusion with this book is because this book is of that design also it's not really a horror uh, novel it's a thriller like it's a suspense like there's nothing really supernatural per se about danny i mean there's there's definitely like allusions to his like sort like sorted style of like you know grisly murderous storytelling Mm -hmm. here but at the end of the day it's a thriller which is pretty much a departure especially from his predecessor with it like you know so i do think it was kind of like him trying to move forward and it absolutely makes sense for to be bachman Bachman, yeah Mm -hmm. you know it is a total like sort of um tough as nails thriller that he would be publishing at the time under Bachman. I think for me, what's what makes this so interesting is that is that King is and there's when King does write writers, he's very self-critical. He's always working a lot of himself in there and he's doing so oftentimes on in an unflattering way. Like obviously when he inserts, you know, um well, no spoilers, but uh when he sort of 
literally starts putting himself in books later mm-hmm. in his career. He is very self-deprecating with the way that he portrays his character. He makes him very unlikable. And I think that it's that that self-critical aspect that makes this book more interesting. Because like you said, Mel, he does he does sort of in the end come to embrace that I... he is a genre writer in a lot of ways. But at the same time, this really kicked off a an era in King's writing where not like you mentioned that he was writing about writers a Mm -hmm. lot, but he was also really toying with what he could do with genre because not just Tommy knockers, which is a straight sci-fi. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, Gerald's Game, which is, you know, not horror and something else. like That's like, like survivalist thriller. Survivalist thriller. Well, there's and, some horror in there, though. Yeah, I mean, definitely. But I think that, you know, he, that's not the kind of book that he would have written earlier. In and I want to talk a lot. Of, well, not a lot, but I do want to hammer. My hammer thing is that this is a precursor to Gerald's Game. This is Gerald's Game attempt yep. number one. Yeah. Um, and it's the inferior novel. But <laughs> interesting. I, I want to push back a little bit about to, against what you just said, because I sure. feel like when he talks about writers especially with bill denro especially with paul sheldon and even later when he himself is in the books it feels to me more like a petulant ennobling of the profession Mm. i very like he can be self-deprecating and he can say these things and he can beat himself up but it's always in service of like but you know what this is who i am and it is part of me and it's also a noble thing and it's sure. necessary and people fucking love it. And you need to come to terms with the fact that we all love it. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. And I mean that he's he's doing that and that is the that is the entire point of of the book in a lot of ways. Um, where he says like n- there's several passages where he's like, nothing means anything except the misery pulsing through everything, and then he starts going into his musings on writing. Um where am I going with this? No, but that, I, yeah, the, the, yes. Go ahead. I'm. I go ahead. No, no, <laughs> no. But I, I think that that's the like the thing that I, I feel like the subject of misery and what that means to Paul is that Paul's very confrontational with misery. Like he hates it. He hates it. And I don't even think that he really he loves it. Even at the end, I think he just feels it is it's his, it's his own. He feels that he's identif- He identifies himself like he almost personifies himself as the book series in, it, in itself, it becomes this, like this existential sort of life raft for him because he's like, am I Paul Sheldon without misery? And I feel like that's <laughs> King saying that with horror. And well, I don't, is, I don't necessarily. King is, and writing. King has always, always argued for the independence of the idea and also the writing motor. Right. He's always like, these are the little men. And it's not me. Right. It's like things working through me. And I've never had that relationship with writing, so I always bristle a little bit. I'm just like, oh, come on. I feel more like Annie Wilkes when she's like, you have control over the characters. Like, don't bullshit me, Buster. Like, Well, I think what's interesting in this, I see this as sort of a precursor in some ways, definitely to Gerald's game, like in, especially in style and in like format content and uh, and content. Well, yeah, content too, but, uh, but, but sort of the, you know, I'd say the limited palette that he's working with here. And, uh, but I'd say that it's also in some ways a precursor to the dark half for me because there's a bifurcated, uh, part here. There is Paul here sees himself as that there are two Paul Sheldons. There is the Paul who writes trash and there is the Paul who writes good work. And I think that that is something King was reckoning with really hard at this time because uh, Dark Half is very similar because it's about a guy. It's a pseudonym. It's like two different sides of his mind who write very different books. And I think that 
that's something that he was really working through at that time is like, can I, are these two, can they be, you know, independent of each other or are they the same person? Am he, I the same writer? He literally describes his own horror novels as like Big Mac and French fries to Time Magazine around the, the time but, of the release of it. Yeah. And, and I think this that, is also the time, this book was literally published the same, well, a year after Stand By Me, yeah. which they didn't even use the original title. They couched Stephen King's name in the credits. Like that was a, you know, considered this sort of uh, very great coming of age story that was, you know, praised for its writing, most of which probably people didn't even talk about Stephen King involved in that because he was mm-hmm. horror. And I, I I have to imagine in the context of that situation, he had to have been sitting there in Maine just, you know, petting his corgi and just being <laughs> like, God damn it. Like, you know, and just fucking miserable about that. Everything like, feels personal in this novel. Everything. Yeah. Tied yeah. to a bed, forced to yeah. It's There's just so much reckoning anger. with your public perception and it, yeah. yeah, yeah. He even has. I mean, I have this noted for later um, for a certain section that I will not name. But he, you know, compares writing to masturbation basically, <laughs> and then it sort of. You know, with that line, which comes later in the book, it makes you start thinking of the whole book <laughs> as this meta masturbatory exercise. And then I'm like, wait, oh no. <laughs> well, I think there is that time when you start to feel that maybe when you get that famous, you feel as if your identity is being taken away from you oh, because sure. it's being defined by the fans. Sure. Now. And I think that you're he, tied to a bed. Yeah, by you're tied to a bed. The public perception. Of I you. mean, he literally felt this in the 70s, like two or three books in, or less than that, because he published Rage yeah. under Richard Bachman. So clearly he was already like not like, you know, uh, why am I going to be doing horror for the rest of my life? And I mean, I think that's he was so thing. desperate to put out not a horror novel that he pulled out the piece of shit that is Rage well, like, that he wrote in high school. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Like uh, one of the things that kind of drives me nuts is that like, see, he literally expressly expressly states that like misery is about cocaine. You know, yeah. he says that this is a book about cocaine. Annie Wilkes is cocaine. She was my number one fan. I, I think that's a cop out. I really do because when you're on cocaine, you're not going to be writing about you like being a cocaine uh, user. No, well, like, I mean, I and think like that you're not. That's not like something that you're like actually while you're in the moment writing about being like, oh, I got to get off of this stuff. Like when you're like, uh, that's just not the thing. Like you're going, you're going to be looking and exploring e- more like deeper evils within you. I don't know. I think that people, I think people who are addicts are constantly dealing with self-loathing about their addiction I, at least from, from people that i've known he's sitting there snorting cocaine left and right writing yeah. this novel and he's gonna be why am i doing this yeah. I, I just i don't i don't buy it no because i look as someone who's done cocaine a lot in the past i've never thought in my head about like you start but you weren't an addict i'm not an addict per se but i have been addict about other things and i, and I well i guess in the sense that like so when i was addicted to food and stuff like, I, I guess I was like sitting there at McDonald's being like, why am I doing this at the same time? But I do think that like there's a difference with cocaine. Like cocaine, you're so fucking worked up yeah. that you're not really thinking about like you're not there's not there's not a lot of introspection in this in the sense of what you're actually doing in that moment. I feel like you're actually thinking about other things and going down different rabbit holes of other things. But it can so be I, both, too. Right. Because yeah. his relationship with cocaine was inextricable from his relationship with writing. Yeah. And I think. I think yeah, you're right true. in that maybe it, it even just feels less embarrassing. I'm totally projecting here to be like it was about the cocaine rather than like it's exactly what the text is saying. Like it's so on the nose about like my relationship to my writing. Mm-hmm. But really, it's both. Like, I mean, you can't separate them. For yeah, him. I mean, well, he, this is how he says it with with Rolling Stone because they go, I can't believe you're ever a cokehead. Uh, and he goes, <laughs> he goes, uh, and, and he basically says like, well, 
well, I can't comprehend it now either, but you do what you have to do. And when you're an addict, you have to use. So you just try to balance things out as best as you can. But little by little, the family's life started to show cracks. I was usually pretty good at about it. I was able to get up and make the kids breakfast and get them off to school. And I was strong. I had a lot of energy. I would have killed myself otherwise. But the books start to show it after a while. Misery is a book about cocaine. Annie Wilkes is cocaine. She was my number one fan. And that's what he tell, says about the book. I, I just... For me, I think it's lazy to say that this book is literally just about his cocaine addiction. Like, I just don't. Well, I don't I think, I think it's. Got, I think it's so much more. Yeah, than that. it like, definitely. I mean, it obviously is. I think that's maybe the narrative he'd like to apply to it. Like, that's kind of what I think you're saying, right, Mel? That like, yeah. in retrospect, it's it's just easier to say, oh, it's about this thing that I've already conquered, where he's probably still grappling with a lot of the yeah. the issues of like fan fan culture and like expectation. And he's he sort of admits that repeatedly via. Paul Sheldon saying, you know, uh, when he drinks from the the bucket, uh, he's like, I'm going to maybe not tell anyone about this part. And then when mm. he had toward the end, like, is it is it OK to say yeah, things? Are yeah. we spoiler free? I don't yeah. know. Oh, yeah. I have Go spoiler free time um, when he's uh, thinking about how to tell this story after getting away from Annie and his agent asks him to write a real narrative about what a nonfiction narrative about what happened to him and he said even now i can see how i would you know plus up certain parts of it puff up others mm-hmm. and change things like you can't tell the truth i mean he's constantly talking at, you know and and part of the addiction process is to sort of confabulate and tell and, and tell narratives and stuff so it's like can he ever tell the truth about what this book is about i don't know if he can and that's sort of the point yeah. in a lot of yeah. ways. Yeah. yeah. I will That's say really too that to, to go to the bucket point where I feel addiction most prominently in this book is those moments of rock bottom humiliation. Yes. Oof. Yes. And, yeah. Absolutely. And not, not having control of how low you will stoop to get what you need. And that's yeah. what I found the most frightening in many places. Same. I like, I, I used little blue uh, stickies to say wherever I was most frightened and almost all of them are about him not having control over some really essential thing about himself. <laughs> yeah, because he talks about how at one point, like he's like, God, you know, I I, I would love to smoke cigarettes, and he he goes and relishes his past about, uh, or I guess one some early on when he's just sitting there in the room and staring at the wall and all, he talks about how like, oh well, I used to just be drinking and going from bar to bar, and that's probably why I, didn't, I wasn't as prolific in, in writing at the time, and that's because that's how he credits how much he's able to like just get through this misery book while he's just sitting there because he's got literally nothing to do except for write, and I feel like that's also sort of like King's almost way of just kind of yearning for to to wrestle to free of whatever demons he had it's like if i didn't have to deal with all the fucking clutter around me whether that's addiction or my own self-defeating prophecies or mm-hmm. whatever it is or family etc i probably could just be i could just go flow through and i'll see the hole in the book like non-stop or hole in the pages as they, he uses in the yeah. visual measure mm-hmm. for here and i think i do feel like that there's that sort of sort of pathos for me reading this towards Stephen King of just like maybe he feels as if there are still hurdles in his life at this point that mm-hmm. he could be a better writer be and it maybe it's these things that are actually distracting him and you know whether it's drugs or family or whatever it is but um that's that that's another like sort of like weird metaphor I saw with him and Paul of just like Yes, Annie is this 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 dominating thing of like the, the 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 demand of his fans and his publishers and whatnot, and then you know his his own vices he doesn't really have, and I I, I almost feel like Paul Paul's situation is eerily this sort of fantastical um, sort of um, 
uh, like a fantasy almost for King. Cause mm-hmm. it's like, Oh wow. I could just sit here and just write without any sort of like, that was my own would be my own, my own sole purpose. Mm-hmm. Like there's almost like this sort of like weird BDCM, BD, BDSM or ah, what Ooh. is it? The BDSM sort of quality to Paul's situation here mm-hmm. in relation to King's sort of situation also. It's like, mm-hmm. what if I could just fucking be forced to write and not yeah. have any of my vices? Like, that's there's something weird about that. I, I in one of my notes, I wrote the word fandom and then I underlined Dom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I don't know. That's that's all I got here. Yeah, <laughs> That's a good point. I And that actually helps segue into a big thing that I took away from this, which is I think especially in a modern context is uh, I find this book very prescient in terms of toxic fandom, Mm -hmm. which I think is a huge fucking thing right now. I mean, you know, working working at COS and and AV Club, I know that if I'm writing about Star Wars or something and I, you know, get something wrong from what like the fifth Star Wars expanded universe gambling with your life there 83 then I've got 15 people on Twitter telling me I'm wrong and then well then your opinion doesn't count either because of it yeah I know and uh and I don't even read comments anymore because I'm I've I get called shit that is insane because I say like you know, I don't know. Last, Last Jedi was good. Like, well, you have you have creators and actors leaving social media because yeah. they feel attacked and often in danger if they're getting yeah. doxxed. Yeah, Kelly Tran um, left social media. Millie Bobby Brown left social media. Uh, Daisy Ridley, and then just like even Will Poulter from Black Mirror Bandersnatch, he just left. Wait, There's really? Some, yeah, because he said he was he based he was very. He was very chill about it, but he's just like, yeah, there's a lot of, I'm getting, there's a lot of negativity on here. I'm not going to do this. <laughs> Wait, over Black Mirror? Well, yeah, because people went fucking crazy hating on Bandersnatch, which I thought was pretty good. I, but I mean, it's it, not great, but. It often has to do with, it's so, it rings to me. There was like this controversy with Steven Universe creators or mm-hmm. work, or people who worked on it earlier, like a year ago or something, when they wouldn't show a pairing that fans really wanted. They wanted two characters to get together yep. and it drove artists off Twitter because they were so mad that it, the show was not fulfilling their desires. And I yep. was like, it's a tiny cadron of Annie Wilkes's. <laughs> like, yeah. The, the, the most obvious example, something you've already mentioned was just the star Wars thing. And, and, and honestly, it's not even just so much that it's awful with the, what the fans have done and with the way that they've kind of gone off on the different celebrities. Cause I, to a point, I, I feel bad, but at the same time, I'm just like, well, it's just social media. Just turn it off. Like, who cares? Like, they're, they're idiots. The thing that drives me nuts is the fact that um, the slavish devotion to yeah. these vocal, you know, folks, like, Disney listens to all of this yeah. and has feedback. Like, there's a reason why, like, they're, you know, they've been incredibly, you know, particular with how they're going to be doing this follow-up to Last Jedi. Like, there's a reason why, after the reaction of Solo, they're like, eh, maybe we should not be doing these, like, spinoffs now anymore. It's like, we got to go back to the drawing table and make sure that we go through all the different committee-based, like, filmmaking at this point and make sure that we can check off every box and we could appease more people, like... This this industry mm-hmm. is so and, and, and it applies to everything. It literally applies to our publication for sure yeah. because we sit there and we go, well, we don't really actually cover this in our scope, but our readers love this, and we have to make sure that we yep. can stay afloat and go on on, on board with it's that. Magnetized towards centrism. Just, I yeah. mean, it, very, it feels very political. <laughs> yes, I was going to say this is all exactly the same in politics. It's yeah. perception is reality. Now we yeah. live in this world, and that's 100%. how things are. Feed <laughs> the entitlement of the entitled people, therefore never opening an avenue for the creativity to blossom in a different direction well yeah and i think for me like this is a topic i've gotten kind of passionate about over the last year or two i think just because i've had to write about it so much and i'm reading so many articles about 
uh, fandom and how sort of and you know I just think back to uh, Gamergate and how Gamergate was sort of the the breeding ground for the alt right. And that was a pop culture movement. Um, it was a deeply misogynistic, problematic, horrible thing that in a, in a lot of ways helped spawn the chat rooms and the Reddit threads that really turned into alt-right message boards. And there's so many reports these days about how gaming YouTube is becoming a portal to um, radicalized misogyny and transphobia and um, racism. Mm. And I'm terrified because my nephew who is 10 years old is obsessed with gaming YouTube and like, and then YouTube's algorithm when you're watching these videos starts to suggest, cause like all these gamers are fucking, you got PewDiePie out there sharing Nazi memes and they won't do anything to him cause he's the third most popular guy on the platform. And then, you know, you're watching him and then he says something and then you get, their algorithm like shows you another video to watch that and then it takes you down the rabbit hole and like this is a real thing and i just see that the sort of slavish devotion to pop culture and the absolute the absolutism the idea that you own this pop culture uh it's it's a passion that lends itself to uh you know that weirdly serves as this sign of sort of gateway into that kind of same absolutism about like human rights and um and gender identity and things like that and it's weird it's weirdly connected and i know i, f- I sound a little tinfoil hat but it's like no, 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 I totally not at all. <laughs> something that, it's just something that that i think about a lot and you know i just wrote i took a lot of notes here and i was just re- literally saying i mean this this book is about uh a fan who asserts ownership over a piece of art Absolutely. you know and it's like and like we look at Star Wars and go- like Ghostbusters even like I mean it's like p- the whole thing was just how dare you put women in this world and they can come up with a million different ways to couch uh, that criticism and but it's like and say oh no it's not about misogyny but it totally is in the end and that's why everybody's problem with Star Wars too it's because there's like oh suddenly there's women and people of color in major roles and it's like and all these people suddenly have a problem with well, it. Th- th- and here's my thing about that is it's not always about that. And that's my problem with any of these debates is that this is basically boiled down to the scene in Dawn of the Dead where there's like two people arguing and the one guy's just in the corner just being like, we have to be logical. <laughs> and he's the one that actually seems insane as he, and, and, and compared to everyone else that's like fucking throwing their heads off and stuff. My problem is, is that there's just no, there's no more room for nuanced discussion. Yeah. Like yes. both sides of, of, like you mentioned, like Ghostbusters and Star Wars, the vocal, huge craziness sides, they're both wrong. Yeah. The people that are saying like, well, it's not about misogyny. And then the people that are saying, no, it is about misogyny. Well, there's a gray middle there sure. that, you, that nobody gets a voice for because nobody can just be bipartisan about things anymore. And again, it does go back to politics. It has to be black or white. And I feel like one of the reasons why... I'm, I'm very interested to see what's going on with this new movement of it's almost like people are uh, are kind of and this is going to be a controversial state uh, uh, position here, here so whatever but <laughs> the one Buckle thing up. the only one thing that I will say that that has been interesting about what's this this sort of Trumpism sort of politics is that if those people that are in the middle that have those that that that, that hit an exhibit in the gray area if they could just be a little bit more forthcoming with their opinion and say well no both sides are wrong let's actually try to discuss this and have a, a more cavalier attitude about it which for lack of better if you want to call it like trumpy in that way then maybe there is a soluble sort of like outcome out of this as opposed to just having to continue to coexist in this fucking messed up chaotic world of 
you're either yes or you're either no. Yeah. There maybe is a maybe. It's the well, same thing with Rotten but no, Tomatoes. No, but I would like, argue, I mean, maybe this actually fits into what you were saying. I mean, the whole problem is that one, God, now this is a political podcast. <laughs> no, no. <I laughs> one, one group is beholden to the idea of compromise. Yeah. And one group is not. Exactly. And therefore you don't you don't get anything but compromising with the one group who's yeah. not open to compromise. That's a yes. good that's a good way to phrase it. And I think that, you know, and I think that the people who are not compromising, they just want everything to be to their specifications. Yes. And that to me is what you really see in this book is Annie literally is dictating. I mean, the book he ends up, you know, flying down a creative rabbit hole with this, which I think says something interesting. And, and to your point, Mike, I think it is like it is, it's never is about one thing, right? If anything, it's about resistance to change or just like an attachment to a nostalgic idea. Oh, totally. And we see that from everything like Gamergate to just like George R. R. Martin, poor yeah. George out there, like just trying to write his shit at the pace he wants to write it. Right. And everyone feels like they own not just the story, but the writer and the pace at which the story is produced. Well, and can you even imagine the pressure he feels right now? The idea that like everybody is, has so many expectations, especially with the show. Like, it, it, what is he going to write and is it going to be to their specifications? At the same time, he's like just living it up at these conventions and oh, he's having a great all time. these reports yeah. just I'm hanging just, out at parties and I'm stuff. I'm just saying so, creatively. I mean, but I think yeah. what bothers me, and this George R. R. Martin's actually a great example of this, and I'm glad you brought him up, is is it's the when when you enter into this kind of toxic fandom i think what really bugs me is that the love that these fans profess to have for these pieces of art or these authors or these creators it's a very hollow kind of love because as much as they purport that these things change their life and everything blah 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 as soon as the creator does something they don't like they turn on them you mm -hmm. know and it's like that love is sort of limbed with this intense hatred uh, because may, and you know, and it's like, there's that hatred that, that lingers just below the surface. And that's what he captures with Annie so well. Well, and an innate narcissism too, that I know yeah. this content, right. mm -hmm. where this is going to go, the, the interior life of it better than the creator. Like you are the vessel to create it, right. but I know what's good. And like, like Annie hates him. Like, <laughs> as that's Super. what I was, I was thinking as I was reading it, uh, like, we're sort of into the hook now, but it's it's all relevant. Oh, to we're well as well by this <laughs> yes. point. Uh, but I think that for me, the uh, I just was I was marveling. I was like saying out loud, like I was just like she hates him so much, and so that's why I love that he's able to capture that because when it comes out, it's so intense. It's like then, George Lucas. People yeah. hate George Lucas, right. but they love what he created. But then and... they, they'll also say like, I love George Lucas because he created this thing, but I hate him for a million other reasons. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's how she is. Like, she'll be like, I love you, Paul. She'll bring him champagne. She does like, she has those little hollow moments of love. But then when the hatred comes out, it's so much more intense and visceral and violent, you know? And it's like, that's what bubbles beneath the surface. And that's what scares me about fandom in a lot of ways is that I feel like we become so passionate about something. We become obsessive about it and it yes. doesn't become about passion. It becomes about like, you know, and this is my problem with fandom is like when somebody thinks that that they know you better or they know a piece of art better because they can quote every line from it or they can name every tr piece of trivia about it. And I say this as somebody who does that sometimes. It's like but it's like that does not mean that, you know, at a, at a certain point you are. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like intellectualizing and obsessing over a piece of art rather than appreciating it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that really bothers me about fandom. And I feel like that's sort of how Annie is. Um, it, it just leads people to become inarticulate too, because you get the sense that at that point, it is part of their identity. They've woven it into the fabric of their being in such a way that it is hard for them to defend how worked up they can get over it. Yeah. 
and that's well, like well, the politics too it becomes yeah. an addiction it's the same thing yes. as like what, yeah. you know the addiction that that king says with the cocaine thing like mm-hmm. i mean for me personally just this past year like you know we all laugh and we're like oh look mike's obsessed with stranger things mm-hmm. stranger things was literally my escape okay. when i was when i was going through like you know the, the whole divorce and everything like that i just I, it didn't matter that i've already watched the episodes mm-hmm. there was just something about good old Hawkins, Indiana that I just loved <laughs> hanging out in, and it was just aesthetically pleasing and it just took my mind off of everything else that was in the world. Totally. Now, but that's very different, but it be also, beca- no, no, but it's, but it becomes an addiction. Sure. And, and, and that's why like, look, and that it, it's, it's different in a sense, but it's also like my obsession with like Steve Harrington is very like Annie Wilkes like, and then reading this book, I definitely did think that because well, would become... you lock Joe Carey to a bed? Oh, absolutely. And I would absolutely <laughs> hobble him. Um, uh, it is important know, to note that we're all like, not immune to this. Like I've felt yes. the same thing. Absolutely. Oh, I mean, hell yeah. I've had some dark moments with Buffy. <laughs> but you become to like, for example, like my, my, my girlfriend just watched Gremlins. Yeah. Right. I've never seen it. And it is, it's gotten to the point where like, I think we've, I think we have like at least four or five uh, different Mogwai or, or Gizmo stuff in our apartment, literally within the three, three weeks or whatever. And that's the same type of mentality I have yeah. where it's like, I love something so much that I have to just, just soak up every fucking bit and uh, piece that's out there. And I know where there's a line and I've definitely sort of crossed it. Like I felt like really fucking <laughs> wrong when I was at the the convention, like the Stranger Things convention last year, like even dressed up as Steve. Yeah. Because I was like, what am I doing? Like I'm like, <laughs> I'm losing my mind. Like I've become way too fucking so obsessed question, with this. What would yeah, happen ex- if they did something with Steve's character that you just like hated? No, well, that was the thing. Like, well, before the second season, spoiler alert, yeah. Randall had watched, we, we were watching it in tandem and yeah, finally we, I had to call off and I was like, I'm fucking exhausted. We I literally go. started watching it the minute it got on because I had to write about it and you were just, and you he, were fanning it. I woke up the next morning and he he goes, oh my god, I'm gutted because they just did something to a character. And I literally was watching that second season, thinking that it was Steve, and I was I was losing my Aston. mind. And yeah, yeah. And I and <laughs> so were I, you I was losing your mind in anger. No, no. Okay. But I I can see how people can cross that cross that threshold because all of a sudden you've taken away something that meant something in their life that not only just gave them purpose but gave them comfort. And comfort is. Anything that can distract us from the idea that we're going to die and that we're actually pathetic and we're meaningless. Because when you scrape away everything, Netflix, all our pop culture, the 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 the, the, the things that we have that these luxuries, mm-hmm. it's very fucking kind of scary. It's yeah. like it's like sitting when I used to sit there and in, 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 uh, as a kid and try to figure out what the like all, nothing meant. And I just kept seeing black and I was just like, well, that's not not that's not that's a you know, that's something. And I would just sit there like, what is nothing? And then. It's like, and you get in this sort of depressed existential like rage it's about it before you were born. That's yeah, exactly. right. <laughs> and so, like, without when you strip away the things that are our comforts, all of a sudden life gets very scary. And I think that's the people that can't find other things to kind of lean on, yeah. like yeah. say Annie Wilkes. Like that's when you get that sort of murderous rampage because and all of the, all bets are off. At that I point. love the nuance too, where she even knows that there are rules that this has to abide by and it can't just be eating a whole cake, right? Like she doesn't <laughs> like the first version that he gives her because right. he, she knows that's pandering. I love that to her. Yeah. I loved that sequence as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's to the, to the addict, you know, slash obsessive angle. Um, I sometimes think about, you know, the proliferation of obsessive fandoms now and how, you know, we never have any time with our own thoughts anymore because mm. we're, you know, it's the old, I'm going to sound like a boomer, uh, you know, the old, <laughs> you're on your phone, well, you got the tabs open, you know. <laughs> um, but, I mean, truly, I do feel a change in my own brain since, you know, these things became commonplace and I do find it harder to sit with myself and reflecting on reading paperbacks as a kid. Like, I was an only child. I had not 
a ton of friends. I spent a lot of time with my own thoughts. And the thought of doing that now is horrifying. And, you know, it, it is, you know, and then we just keep piling and piling these things on top of each other so that we're never left alone with our thoughts for even a moment. Um, or you have to wait for a next episode to come out. That's no longer a thing. Yeah. Right. You don't have to think yeah. in between episodes. It's yeah. already there. Yeah. It's so funny you say that, Laura, because literally like my favorite meme I've seen over the last several years is uh, Ralph Wiggum on a school bus and he's just going, I'm in danger. And uh, because, yeah, it's from an episode. But then I just remember somebody posted that and then they just said me alone or me when I'm left alone with my thoughts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah. I'm in danger. And it's like, that's literally me. Mm-hmm. So and I so I totally relate with that. And I know what you mean in the idea idea of like constant consumption of this kind of stuff and but anyways I guess like I was so struck when I was reading Misery because Paul has that whole section where he talks about a fan sending him photos Mm -hmm. of the Misery room she created in her house and then he wrote back and he's just like he's like uh oh that's really cool you know thanks (laughs) and then she writes back again with like 10 more photos and 10 more pages of things and then he is like okay okay and then she starts to get mad because he's not responding in the way that she wants and this is happening through letters you know and I think that it just makes me think of social media where these things happen so much more quickly now that whole idea of tweeting at somebody sure sending things we've even experienced this yeah like people will Facebook message us about yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, 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 and and, and and that's and we're like plebes. I mean, so like I can't even imagine. We're garbage. Yeah, we are. We garbage. are garbage. We live in a dumpster. We are I officially just, garbage. I just people. got here, but I'm definitely garbage. <laughs> <laughs> I well, well the, the thing is that comes from a sense of place for King. Yeah. Um who had th- this is fucking crazy but I didn't even realize this actually. We're back to history. We're back to history a little bit. <laughs> but um this is according to the complete Stephen King universe. A guide to the worlds of Stephen King by Stanley Wyatter, uh, Christopher Golden and Hank Wagner. Ah, Hank Wagner. Love Hank from Breaking Bad. Um <laughs> Misery was it's that <laughs> Hank everyone. <laughs> um Misery was clearly inspired by events in King's own life. He has been stalked by obsessive fans. And this is crazy. And his home has been invaded by someone claiming to have a bomb. Yeah. Oh. In 1980, he reportedly signed one of his books for a stranger who actually did call himself King's number one fan. That lost soul was history's big hero, uh, Mark Chapman. Mark David Chapman. No oh, shit. What? That I did That's not know. Crazy. That's, is that crazy? So he would, you know, who would obviously learn, earn his place in history for shooting John Lennon shortly after. I'm surprised um, he, he surprised he didn't have a copy of The Shining in his pocket instead of Catcher in the Rye. Yeah. Oh, man. I just listened to a long podcast about Mark David Chapman, too. And so he was, I mean, it's he's a funny guy. He, like, imagined there were, like, little soldiers or, like, little, uh, ugh, I'm not going to get into it. I won't digress further. Weird guy. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, Jared Leto. Jared Leto. He, uh, Leto he ate uh, soy and uh, ice cream to, to, to get to that role. Oh, I was wondering about that, though, because this seemed so drawn from, like, I'm like, what letters is he getting? Oh, you yeah. know? Yeah. Like, yeah. And it just makes me think I'm like. I guess it just, yeah, like you said, it happens to us even, like, occasionally, and, but it's, it's the idea of the response sometimes, like, am I giving, like, you know, it's, are you giving them the response that they want? Because yeah. I've seen fans on Twitter, like, people will retweet stuff, like, oh, look at this insane exchange, you know, like, some fan just, like, piling on some celebrity because they're not responding to their tweets, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think that is just really spooky and kind of scary to me. Totally. Even even the wholesome ones, like I think we've all maybe heard the story of the woman who was like 90 and she was like, I'm not dying until you finish the Dark Tower yep. series. Like yeah. you have to finish it before I die, which like don't ever put that on oh. anyone. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember though as a child, again, I keep, God, I keep bringing up my childhood a lot. I apologize. No, I, we I, all do. <laughs> I, I just remember being like, 
and this is when I like still intermittently believed in God. And like, you know, at the moments that I would pray, it would be like, just you know, let me get through the last Star Wars movie, like of the new, the new editions. How depressing is that? Like the new, you know, like Phantom Menace era of, of theatrical releases or like when I started reading Harry Potter, like if I could just make it till the end of Harry Potter, <laughs> you're like, I'm good. No, but and I've like, had those thoughts in my head for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. And it, what it is, is like an outsourcing of fulfillment that isn't sustainable. Yeah, <laughs> oh, totally. Exactly. Like, it's maladaptive. There, but every year comes another thing. Like we do these anticipated lists for COS yeah. and we do them from albums and now we do it for film and TV. And there are so many things every year that I come back and say like, all right, if I could just get to this, I'm I'm good. And that's like, it's crazy, but that's exactly how I live. Well, you like, were saying live. that because like to like Stranger Things season three. And then what's the other thing coming out this summer that you're stoked about? Oh, well, there's I mean, obviously there's, uh, you know, chapter two for it. But yes. I mean, I, I'm really excited for like Jordan Peele's The Twilight Zone. But you were like joking in quotes in the thread. You're just like, like, I've got to get to the summer it's like such a long time. Well, it's because Stranger Things doesn't come out until July 4th. I know, but it's like, I know what you mean though, because yeah. like. Is your July 4th party going to be like insane? Oh, it's going to be nothing. Like I've like I've already talked about it with Sam or just like, I don't think you're going to, I don't think you've ever seen me to this obsession before. <laughs> like I, I, I've been this way where like I've gotten wild, like, like Twin Kingdom, Peaks. like well, Twin Peaks was Yeah, insane. we were all nuts about that. That was yeah. wild. And to the point where like, I mean, I think we, we were hanging out for a few, like few days before that and yeah. having drinks and we literally would not shut the fuck up about the No, I, I, I was like, not, I, that was a case of me being obsessive because yeah. I never shut up about it. But the thing is that was actually a really good example of, I think that was one where I had to tell myself to let go of how I wanted it to yeah. happen, you know, because I part of me was like, it needs to answer this. It needs to do this. And in Lynch my does not. No, care. and Lynch does not do that. And that's mm-hmm. the thing was I it's like what I actively had to like, <laughs> they want us to do pie <laughs> like <laughs> approaching the finale. I like actively had to tell myself not to expect things and to embrace what was given because yeah. that's I know Lynch, but I also know that it's like it's well, just it's yeah, th- I didn't want to literally hate it. what the season's about. And though. I didn't want to like, hate it because it didn't give me what I no, wanted. No, and I think and I, I think that that's something uh, that you actively have to do sometimes. And it's like in relationships too. Like you sometimes you have to realize that I think that's a healthy relationship is realizing that this person does not exist to do your every no. whim. You yeah, sometimes that's, exactly. that's what love is. <laughs> people can't realize that because there is also like a critical component, right? And something isn't bad because it didn't give you what you want. Right, but exactly. Some people equate it to being bad. Yeah, exactly. Oftentimes but also better. sometimes things should give you something. Yeah, so it's yeah. like really hard to like walk that line. And it's I like, think oh, is it a massive plot hole or am right. I just upset? Right. <laughs> like, And people are trying to toe that line left and right. I mean, look, I mean, I made the joke about Hank and my boy in uh, Breaking Bad, but <laughs> look at Better Call Saul. Like literally the show started off as being its own thing and then all of a sudden had to lean heavy into Mike Ertentrout's, uh Jonathan Banks, uh, his character, because they need to have some sort of more like you know, connection Brad tissue, pre- you know, prequel, connective yeah. tissue for Breaking Bad because the fans were like, well, this isn't enough of where's Walter White and Jesse and, <laughs> you know, I need Gus. Like, you know, and that's why the seasons have just gotten more and more expansive with that. However, I do think that a lot of these creators are getting very, like, smart about ways to make it happen. As yeah. opposed to saying, remember when, they're saying, like, well, this is also what happened. You know, like, this is, this yeah. is also what was going on at the and same time. We like, live in a world now where it's like, we are guaranteed Easter eggs. Oh yeah. Instead of just being like surprised and delighted, 
we are just like, where are they? Where are they? Where are yeah. they? And you can be clever about it, you know, and you don't have to go the approach that Lynch did, which I, I the thing is, I love what Lynch did. Like, Same. I, I, I love Twin Peaks The Return. And my one of my things I in hindsight now, even especially just right now realizing this is how amazing that is such a fuck you to that sort of culture. Yeah, exactly. Because that's literally, what makes Lynch so great. Is right. a narr- he's a narrative genius because that's like, you know, people are like, oh, I don't get it. But you can really say if you just accept his worldview when you yeah. go into any one of his you know, television shows or movies, it is the most delightful experience yeah. you'll ever yep. have. And it's letting go. And he's, isn't he like into like Eastern spirituality and mm-hmm. stuff? Yeah. It is really often about just like letting go. He says, don't these... try to de- deconstruct it. Yeah. Right. exactly. And that's what makes it, it's like a purely enjoyable experience because you don't have to do that. Ugh. Well, and the way Lynch frames it too, is he's like, why would you want to deconstruct? Yeah. It? He's like, just, he's like, he's like that, does, like for him, that's not enjoyable. Well, he's just very simple. For he... some people, that is a part of like that's the thing is fandom has evolved. Part of the enjoyment is in the deconstruction and the discovery. Sure, and I think that marks a different kind of fan. But I think that what Lynch is getting at is there is a pure enjoyment when you can kind of just accept something for what it is, let it like marinate, let it oh, sit no, with you, and move on. He, and I think that that's something because you know I I like to deconstruct stuff every now and then, but I'd like to think that. I, as I've gotten older, I've gotten better about accepting a piece of art for what it is. And you can deconstruct it, but you also just meet the creator where they want to be. No, I mean, he's very, I mean, for as complex as his works are, he's very orthodox in the way that you approach it. He yeah. says, go, absorb, and then enjoy it afterwards, so, which is, you know, what, what part of the reason why I think he loves pie and coffee so much is because that's been the old norm. It's like you go watch something in pop culture, yeah. you come back and you just mm-hmm. meditate over it with pie and co- like coffee. And like, I mean, that's literally been in like true romance. It's literally been in like a bunch of different like pop culture mediums of just that idea of the pie and coffee moment of being able to just kind of Mm -hmm. absorb and digest exactly what you've just saw as opposed to doing it in the moment, which is why I can't stand when, you know, people like will just sit there on their phones and like be like looking things and deconstructing it as they're fucking watching something. And I'll just be like, God, just just (laughs) just let it happen. You know, this feels relevant to the workshop process. Yeah. Like I feel like my. And everyone has differing opinions on this. But it, this what you're talking about feels to me like the idea of giving something what, what I call a charitable read. Mm-hmm. Where you're trying to to come at it in a way where you are like, what is this author trying to do? Mm-hmm. And totally leaving the idea of yourself behind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And helping them by giving critique that is geared towards the charitable read and not towards your ideal story. Yeah. <laughs> which is like how you find the readers that are good for you. Well, I think this conversation has been really fascinating just because I think and I think it's interesting that the history and the hook sort of interwove in the way they did. Because yeah. I they think, have to. Yeah, exactly. I think that the the themes of this book are so personal and interwoven with King's life, but also the way that we I think it's, you know, almost meta in the sense that it's about how we consume this kind of work, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, popular culture and the way our relationships to it. And I think that's what really sort of um, gives the book a lot more weight. But then it also has a really cool story. But um, so what do you guys think? Should, do you think we should move on to uh, talk about the structure and format? I'm game. Let's do it. Look at me. Look at me, teacher. Welcome, welcome to Structure and Format, your favorite section of the show. Uh, you get you okay, Mike? Yeah, I'm good. Um, we do joke that this is a fan favorite. Yeah. <laughs> structure and Format. Well, I think it is interesting, though. I think, I guess, like, I'll start this off as saying that I think pain 
is sort of really integral to the way that uh, the story is told. I mm-hmm. think that a lot of the book, especially in the early going and and even in just the way that um, the ends and the letters are missing from the misery text and the way that that like the handwritten ends and or when they're not there at all, gives it sort of a disorienting, oh, yeah. like a disorientation kind of feeling. Parallels uh, the wear and tear. Yeah. And I think that that's really neat. I think that that's I think what really struck me in terms of the way the book is written is that King sort of really does write it from behind sort of a gauze of of uh, pain and suffering, which is very something that we've talked about in this podcast before is that a lot of times King will use uh, somebody's struggles with pain um, and, uh, you know, quote unquote misery to help uh, develop a character True. Um, in the throes of pain. Sort of you see the truest self of somebody. And so I think that there was a lot of that going on here. And that was really reflected in sort of the um, the woozy way that Paul was taking in the world, taking in the reality of what was happening to him. And I think that King did a really good job of of capturing that so. he also does a lot of the the classic king double back where he'll yeah. just mention like you know oh lost thumb and you're like wait what and then all of a sudden he'll peel back and tell you how the lost thumb yeah happened. i like, loved the the reveal and then i was like i don't know don't go back just let me like wonder like what happened <laughs> yeah yeah i, I kind of wish that he did just kind of leave it out of the thing also. it was so creepy yeah i mean on a, on a technical literal level we've got three sections yeah right mm-hmm. so we've got um the first one is paul or no, the first one is Annie with the Nietzsche quote. The second one is is Paul, or it might be misery. I know it's. I think it's, I think misery, it's misery, and yeah. the third one is Paul. Yes, the second one is misery with the Montaigne quote, and then the third one is Paul. Um, I thought the Montaigne quote was interesting too. That choice, and just because Montaigne was the essayist who would just write about himself extensively before that was like a thing, you know, like, <laughs> and so it's just kind of interesting in the context of this story. But go on, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's my whole. I mean, it, it sort of mirrors Paul coming into his own yeah. by the end. Um, yeah, that's true. And you know, what I thought too. This reminded me just maybe because of the the amputation of survivor type and King kind of being like, well, what if the person in survivor type was introspective and not an asshole? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, wasn't Andrew Dice Clay? What would it look <laughs> like? What would the thoughts be like? Yeah, that's interesting. I think that. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it's kind of like Gerald's game. Well, obviously, it's like Gerald's game, but in the sense that I think King, you know, we spend so much time in Paul's mind. And I think uh, the the way thought processes work, you know, I think is really neat. And there are several chapters that I found very disorienting because it leaps between, you know, writing philosophy, memories, um, uh, present revelations about like what he's actually experiencing. I love the moments when he just like the, when King writes it. So it's like, Annie is just in the room again, you know, mm-hmm. like there's no mention of her entering. She's just there. Like that kind of stuff is really spooky to me. Cause I guess like I've always felt very vulnerable. Like if I'm sick and you're kind of drifting in and out of consciousness, that sort of uh, is such a horrible disorienting feeling to me. Yeah. Like when you wake up and somebody's in the room you know, or, you know, the cat's laying on you and you it wasn't like the last time you were awake. It's always very strange to me. It's a very meta book. Yeah. You so know? meta. Incredibly. I mean, like even just the way they do the ending, it's so self-aware of like the kind of cliche horror, which mm-hmm. again, I feel like ties back to him as like own tongue in cheek ways of like poking fun at the genre. Just even the way he does this ending is yes. just, it, it almost made me realize like, or maybe think like, is this the book that... <laughs> That uh, that Paul was like being tasked to write that, you know, his agent was like, well, hey, you know, you could write this and, yeah. you know, it will sell. Yeah. Is this mm-hmm. supposed to be his book? Like, 
you know, it, it, it was at, by the end of the thing where he starts playing with the format and, you know, showing that, oh, it was Annie behind the couch. And then, well, no, it's not really Annie. This mm-hmm. is actually what happened. And this is real life. Like that whole discussion of this is what happens in a story and this is what happens in real life seems to be built into the structure and format of this book for sure. Yeah. I think it supports your theory, too, about um, King's relationship to horror. The craft element thing that I was talking about earlier I love how Paul gradually realizes that what he's writing for Annie is becoming a gothic horror mm-hmm. novel. Mm-hmm. It almost seems like King's insights and opinions and struggle are leaching into the book. Like he can't keep horror out of this one, even though Paul is supposed to be yeah. a, a, a romance or a mystery yeah. writer. And by the end, it's completely become horror tropes. And it feels like King has to contend with that within the book itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He can't keep it out. There's a passage that struck me as like the the most meta passage. I think we touched on it earlier, um, but it's because he's talking about his real work, you know, and it's like this, you know, and how like fast cars and all of this. And but it was becoming almost like he was trying too hard um, with it. And he it says this on page two ninety seven in my edition. Um, as a result, hadn't his serious fiction become steadily more self-conscious, a sort of scream, look at me, look how good this is. Hey guys, this stuff has got a sliding perspective. This stuff has got stream of consciousness interludes. This is my real work, you assholes. Um, and like, <laughs> that's exactly what this book is. Like, you know, like, it's like the, the stream of consciousness and like all the, you know, and it's like, is, is he even in this moment criticizing the book that we're reading via paul sheldon which he refuses to admit as himself but it's totally himself i don't know totally yeah (laughs) yeah yeah that's really interesting what do you guys think about the misery sections that we read Uh, because i think that those are an interesting sort of uh diversion that we get there i will say okay so i really do not like the the sections in the body where you're starting to read gordy short stories i don't like that even as a writer i don't really find them that interesting however as you know, someone has tried to do fiction writing. I do think it was interesting watching him do a first attempt at the beginning and trying to get her to survive or to come back. Yeah. And I do love their whole dissection or his dissection, which feels like Stephen King's on writer, which a lot of this feels like Stephen mm-hmm. King's on writing. Um, when he talks about what was fair and what was cheap and what was not. So to see him attempt that again, I did actually enjoy that passage to see how he made it actually work and yeah. happen. Uh, so in that respect, I did enjoy it. But by the end, when you're already in this like thick of the action, and he's trying to survive. I'm just like, and especially since there's one part where it's like all scribbly and I'm, yeah. like, I'm like trying to decipher it. And I was like, I don't really give a shit. I just keep going. I want to get, I want to know wh- when the fuck the cat- cops are coming back. <laughs> what's going to happen in the basement? Like all this other stuff. You I'm aren't just, interested in the travails of, uh, no, of no. Hezekiah. It's uh, on <laughs> the dark continent. <laughs> oh God, we will get to that. Yeah, I've got a lot it, of notes on that. It seems like, and I, I was very kind of disappointed that we get the end section because it seems like he was so playing on the concept of the the gotta, the gotta know, that yeah. I was very surprised that he lets us see the end of the book but Agreed. doesn't let Annie see the end of Agreed. the book. I was like, come on, like put your money where your mouth is. Yep. Don't let us see it because I do get a little bit invested. I kind of do want to know what happens to Misery. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree 100%. I was thinking that too. I'm just like, why are you showing this to us? Like, yeah, that's really neat. Um, any other thoughts on structure and format? I was also just really impressed by the, his romance writing. Yeah. Like it felt really, it felt real. Like I feel like. Yeah. Definitely. Like racist shit notwithstanding. <laughs> like, yeah. like the, the style of that writing felt like 
oh, he can do it. Like, yeah. if he wanted to, he could write these books. Yeah, I, I always enjoyed that kind of writing in, like, high school and college. So I found myself a little hooked by it. I, I enjoyed it as well. <laughs> there's, It's like in uh, Ulysses, James Joyce, there's a whole chapter where he kind of, um, uh, you know, stylistically, he adopts all the different sort of literary movements um, that, uh, for basically going back to, like, Homer and everything uh, throughout this one chapter in Ulysses, Joyce does. And, uh, and I remember being so impressed by that. And what I kind of love... Uh, in King's work is every now and then we get to see him toy with other genres Mm -hmm. like yeah he probably wouldn't write a whole book or something but it's fun to see him like oh he can adapt his voice to write in this kind of style you Mm -hmm. know just like in um I don't know there's other like in in Dark Half I believe we get to see like him tackling sort of uh like a a pulpy detective kind of stuff which then he went on to write a lot more and that's what he that's like his bread and butter now but yeah I mean like look it's it you had mentioned this is this being like this prelude to Gerald's game I absolutely agree because just in the sense that a lot of this and the most interesting parts of this book are the inner the, the inner monologue that you know Paul's having with mm-hmm. himself for sure like that's my, that was my favorite part and like mm-hmm. having that sort of self-deprecating angel and demon sort of slash vice on his shoulder was very interesting to me to read and especially in the context of knowing what Stephen King's mindset might have been at the time too you know yeah. like when he's talking about like the the industry especially and just like how um and in his relationship of knowing that inside baseball compared to like what Annie's you know uh way, way the, Annie's approach to the industry mm-hmm. you know like her as a reader and her him seeing her as this kind of just dumb obsessive reader and wanting to compare that to what he actually knew, right. what of the demands of the industry. She gets were. angry when he calls it a business. Yes. Oh, exactly. Don't call yeah. it that. Really interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's the reality of it. And that's the reason why he's actually even doing any of this. And right. like, so to have that sort of dichotomy uh, really embellished with Paul's own thoughts, I, I just loved every section of that part for yeah. sure. I'm, I'm not sure about the ending. Like I don't, mm-hmm. I, I sort of think it is clever to, again, play with the actual format of the book to mirror the tension between Paul and Annie, the, the, the gotta moment, like the re we as mm-hmm. readers want to know mm-hmm. what has happened. And he's playing with us as the author of the book, just like Paul was playing with Annie. But I don't know if it quite works for me. Well, I do think that the ending is revealing in the sense that, you know, it ends the kind of big question at the end is like, can Paul write again? You know, like, like um after he's like, the question isn't, isn't uh like it doesn't end when he escapes from annie it ends when it's like can he after having been through this and after having um you know reckoned with his own uh demons like in terms of writing and who he is as this bifurcated personality uh writer like the fact that it ends with him sort of like it kind of reminds me of what you were saying earlier mel i mean like the noble profession know, of writing this just pisses me i mean i was talking about the fake out like i don't really enjoy the fake out i don't of, like, is annie alive where is she she killed him no she didn't like yeah. i think that's kind of dumb and like that's what I was talking about, about like the, the form mirroring the content and what you're saying too, it just bothers me because sure. I, at the end of the day, I feel like if you are so torn as a writer with this, like you need to fucking take yourself down and peg, yeah. like just write. You well, it made me wonder too, if, if the ending was about, can he write sober, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think, well, that was because yeah. it feels like this is an inverse of that because yeah. he says, he suggests that he can't write when he's on the, like he, he drinks and he, and then he says that that's going to be like a, a bumper to mm-hmm. him. Like, you know, like if he doesn't, you know, if he does drink, he might actually be able to write or some, some, yeah. some respect. So yeah. it does feel like an inverse to what King says. Although I will say, I think that this, like this whole um, passage on like page 357 mm-hmm. um, is pretty much, 
just King being as blatant as possible. Um, and he talks about like just the idea of being like what the critical press is of a popular writer. Um, and I think that's kind of that whole rundown of him at some point, this book, and especially with the way he uses the form becomes this whole confession for him, his own yeah. self. Like I almost feel like he's not even writing misery anymore. He's just literally talking about his own thoughts. And, yeah. and I feel like that's pretty much the last act of this book. Yeah. Um, because with the exception of obviously the action, the core action that's going on with her falling over the typewriter three different times or whatever. But um, <laughs> I, I do think at, the, at some point he's just like, well, we're almost done. Now it's time for me to just get all my fucking demons on the page here. And I am going to wipe myself clean and kind of tie it off with, with this sort of, meta tongue-in-cheek ending but here's the thing i don't also think that this meta ending is as like annoying and as cloying um as say like you know when like phil lord and chris miller do the type of meta shit where it just becomes like look can't you believe that we're doing this like mm-hmm. it, it feels natural <laughs> like it, it feels like what? you know like exactly like <laughs> we're allowed? going there you know like i, I and, and that's the thing that drives me nuts about most meta stuff whereas with this it just feels it feels of its uh of its skin yeah we were know? talking yeah. about that in the text there the other day we we're it just like it's consistent. meta in a, it's meta in a really interesting way it's yeah. not it's not in a cheeky way you know? yeah i mean it felt like the best use of meta to sort of reflect on writing i mean i i, I had a love-hate relationship with it throughout the book and um I think it's kind of interesting. This is a very nerdy digression. May I? No, go for it. Please. Um, He references Sherlock Holmes and, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle killing him at Reichenbach Falls and the public, you know, fallout that happened after that. Um, And Doyle always felt like he couldn't escape Holmes and no one cared about his other stories. Um, And Sherlock Holmes is a character. Whenever he is not on a case, he shoots up with a diluted cocaine solution (laughs) um, and he gets very depressed and anxious and he's writhing around on the like settee and Watson is like, what are you doing? (laughs) Um, And at the end, at the end of of misery as well, um, he's trying to, you know, he's basically like he's drinking because he can't take the painkillers anymore but it's uh, he's also very restless and unhappy because he can't write and it's not until he's able to write that he's able to like get his steady his hands and so it's like no matter what he's doing he needs a fix yeah he needs a fix of the drugs the booze or the the writing and you know he uses writing while being held prisoner as an escape just like we binge netflix when our lives suck um, I don't know. It all it all sort of mirror mirrors itself into a night nice little acorn for me. Yeah, um, I love that. Even the hole in the page, like you're yeah. in the hole, yes. like, yeah, mm-hmm. that he has to fall into and or look. You know, it, yeah, I feel like you no, know, wherever you turn in this book, it's it is a little bit about addiction. Yeah. Um, Have you ever it, felt that way as a writer, Mel? I feel like this is my whole beef with the book, right? Is that he characterizes a relationship with writing as a relationship with something outside yourself. Mm. I just don't think that's true. And I think it leads to a lot of like self-victimization. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, you're a writer who writes like, but he is kind of like the little men and the characters that run away from me. You can't relate to that at all. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, it makes can. me sound like a fucking like like asshole. No, 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 full no, of no, myself no. person. But I think at the end of the day, if you're not writing, you only have yourself to blame. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. So yeah. I, you know, as a writer, also, I, I, I don't know. I always feel like writing is more like pulling teeth. Like I write because I have to, not because I enjoy it. Either I do feel like compelled to do it, um, for because I want to see the final product. I want to see, how, you know. But I personally hate the process. <laughs> but I don't. I feel like I'm 
squeezing it out of myself. Totally. I hate it. I hate writing. Yeah, I hate and love writing. Yeah. It's like a thing you just are like, why am I doing this? This sucks. And like, yeah, I don't, but mm-hmm. I know I want to get back to creative writing because I, I, you know, I write for a living these days and it's hard for me to, when I was in my twenties, I mean, all I did was, you know, work my jobs and come home and write plays and, and, you know, and I think that I had built up such a momentum back then that it was, I actually enjoyed it. It was fun, you know, but then the thing was the day I felt, the thing is I felt very capped, like, um, I felt very, what's what I'm looking for, imprisoned by my writing back in the day when I was younger because my moods depended on whether or not I had a good writing day or a bad writing day. Mm-hmm. And my moods literally depended on that. And if I had a bad writing day, I would fall into like a deep, horrible depression and like couldn't get out of like I would just lay on my bed and stare at the ceiling. And it was like and also I felt like my identity was completely interwoven with the creative writing that I was doing and whether or not people gave a shit about it. And it was a really unhealthy thing. And I think that's why I stepped back from the creative aspect of it. And but is so, that different? Yeah. That sounds different than like what Paul like the yeah, fact that oh, Paul absolutely. is like I'm free of that bitch misery. Yeah. Oh sure. Is, yeah. That's not what you're talking no, about. No, no, no. I okay. think I was just I think I was just like bullshitting a little bit. But I think we're all just talking about writing. No, you know, it's I, this actually reminds me of a prompt that I was given uh, when I was in grad school where the, one of the first creative writing courses I took was um, with this amazing writer uh, named Michelle Morano. And she's uh, she's at DePaul. And one of the first prompts that she had us was basically writing an essay of like, what are some of your um, you know, habits to writing? Like, wh- what do you do to set your get yourself in the mindset? And at the time you know, I was such a cynical little shit that I was just like, I don't ever have any, like, I don't put a candle on or anything mm-hmm. like that. I don't put, get in the mood or anything. I just I don't go. It's just like, it's like, it's just kind of like the, I, it's kind of like the, the, the whole thing that the Joker says in the dark night. It's just like, I just, you know, dog chasing a car. Like I just, I, I'll just do it. Like, and that's still, and, and I guess in hindsight, there are things that I have to do. Like I can't really be around people when I'm like really doing deep writing and, yeah. you know, like actual deep meditative writing. If it's doing like a news article, whatever, I don't give a shit. But like, um, because yeah, it's just easy. Well, because it's so, it's so <laughs> set on like fast paced things. But if mm-hmm. I'm actually like sitting there with like, you know, a review or something like that, I do need to have some sort of isolation. So that there is, there is some sort of sense of like purpose that can come off as like almost like pretentious to talk about because that's my worry when i did that prompt yeah. in grad school is like well i don't I'm, there's no importance to it there's no self-importance to it well, it's very anarchic i just go into it it like, really is just kind of like making i i totally believe this is all just about pursuing the flow state right like that's mm-hmm. what he's talking about when he yep, gets yeah. it, the, the whole of the page yeah i mm-hmm. believe in the flow state completely and i also believe it is very hard to achieve yeah and it it, it, it it is not in your control no. like there are things that influence it that we cannot control and that you can't pin down so that you can't always reliably reach it in fact most times you won't mm-hmm. but when you start talking about it as something that is just like always existent but unreachable and like operate like i, I just don't like making a weird religion out of oh it. I, agree. I agree totally. yeah. That's, but rituals yeah. i believe in like yeah. whatever works for you totally it's just yeah. a way of looking at things that i that doesn't ring true for me i usually go around the corner and strangle someone and then i go back uh <laughs> and i write now just, <laughs> just like uh, it's for the pros <laughs> cover cover the mouth and just be like i need to this uh, I, I put a cat on the stairs and you know then i go to town no <laughs> um well that was I thought that was an interesting diversion. I did too. Um, let's move on though to talk about a few characters that we've already talked quite a bit about, but I think there's more to unpack in a little section we call heroes and villains. Uh, more like hero and villain. Or zeros and villains. No. No. <laughs> I'm gonna have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the losers club, Massive! <laughs> hello, hello. There's so many characters in this book. <laughs> 
Where yeah. do we begin, Dwayne? This- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a real ensemble from King, and I, I gotta say, it's on par with like Salem's Lot of the Stand, in that there's just a real rich. Uh, tapestry of characters grip on setting to location wise we're going here we're going there <laughs> um, well let's 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 start with this question do we like paul sheldon i do yeah i, I don't mind him because I, I i'm i think he's uh to me it's not the morality that i'm carried about with him yeah. it's more of can you actually be a soluble interesting narrator and yeah. for me he is like sure. I, I do i think he's a good guy no i but i but i do like him to follow him enough where i'm i never get bored with yeah. what he's talking about. Does it help like, that you always imagine James Caan? In the oh, movie? yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I just think of him like walking off of the set of Thief and being like, well, what's the, uh, what's Rob working, uh, what's, who's this Stephen King guy? Because <laughs> he's such a tough, like, he's like, he's like the guy that like gave like Michael Mann shit for using Tangerine Dream, which is like one of the best scores of all time for for Thief. And he's just like, man, you know, I don't know. He's like on the commentary for it. He's like, I don't understand what you went, well, Michael Mann want to do all that nonsense. So I, I, I love just imagine on the set. I can just imagine on the set being like, this is a horror novel? <laughs> You know, like, just like, so I, I've, I've never read this guy. I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a Hemingway guy. I'm a, I'm a, I, I like to be by the beach and I need my, uh, you know, I got Grisham. Like, Grisham. Yeah, I can see him doing that. But so, so I, Paul, like, I can't see anyone else but, yeah. but James Conn in this role. And yeah. I actually do think it's like perfect casting, even taking away, like, I tried so hard reading this book, not picturing him. And I, like, it no. just, but it's just no. his responses, just even to, Na- to, to Annie, he's just so, dry and logical yeah. with her. Oh, it's it's impossible for me not to see Khan, yeah. and I haven't even seen the movie. <laughs> I see, like, a Great Escape era Steve McQueen for some Ooh. reason. <laughs> I don't know, like, because I read the book before I yeah. watched the movie. Um, but yeah, he's very handsome in my mind, kind of rugged. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. I well, like Stephen King. I don't like Paul Sheldon, <laughs> exactly. but I'm perfectly fine sure. with him being the protagonist. I feel like it's all related to, like, how I won't... I don't want to date a writer. I, I don't want to read about a writer who has problems that I don't think are problems. But <laughs> I really do enjoy... Get ready for the rest of the Stephen King's catalog. <laughs> yeah. I, I really do enjoy in a... In a not, not in a sadistic way, but in a way that is that speaks to King's ability to take a pickaxe to the bits of people that we don't normally see, but that we all know are there. How quickly he is reduced to a pathetic yeah. state and how ashamed he is of it yeah that those parts were like just so real and visceral for me and how quickly it happens and how he returns every time even though he's like gotta stay strong it just never works um and so i find him very relatable in that in that aspect i have a lot of nightmares that are like similar to that sort of thing where i have to deeply betray my like principles or something like that because i'm held in a situation where my life is at stake yeah um, yeah, and I think that's really scary. I, I I agree. I I kind of I feel like King does this a lot in that he'll give us a character who is kind of at its core not somebody that you would necessarily want to spend time with, um, which I think in the end um, can often lead to richer like a richer character. But he, I feel like whenever he does do that, he couches it by having this character be in a situation where you can't help but like feel for them. Mm-hmm. Like here, exactly. we not even we just see him in such pain. Like that's what I, I always say. Like pain is character development. Like he uses this a lot in his books and um and i kind of love that and so but i think that too it's it's the way that king writes about how paul screams like and Mm -hmm. begs her like not to hurt him Mm -hmm. when he's like please don't hurt me to her when he sees her with the needle Mm -hmm. like that is so upsetting to me because it just makes i'm just like you know, you'd like to think that you'd be strong in a situation, mm-hmm. but you know that you'd just be reduced and and uh, and so scared and 
And uh, and I I wrote down at one point just like his dependency on her is so right. fascinating because he he has those moments where he's like, well, if she died, I'm fucked because I can't move and we're in the middle of nowhere. Or when he can't scream at the cop at first. Yeah, yeah that just, was like, actually physically can't. That, really I marked upsetting. that as my, my number one most terrifying passage because it was like IRL sleep paralysis. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. I, mm-hmm. And I, I was actually really disturbed that first time he leaves the bedroom and he just looks outside and he sees that it's all muddy and rainy outside. He's like, I couldn't even get through through that and that alone that to me was like this sense of feeling trapped because mm-hmm. i'm a very claustrophobic person in general uh i think i've talked on the podcast before about my how my brother used to wrap me in blankets and drag me around and i would oh. like scream Good and Lord. It, yeah and it's like because so i i developed a lot of claustrophobia but i also just get claustrophobic in life if i feel like i'm in a place too long or if i'm if i get cabin fever really easy i'm like i just got to get out you know i got to I got to like break out That's of whatever box. That's why you got a freelance. I mean. You had like 18,000 jobs. I know. It's like freelancing <laughs> is so good for me because it's like if I need to go for a walk, I can go for a walk. If I need to pet the cat, I can pet the cat, you know, et cetera. If I don't want to wear pants, I don't have to wear pants. It's very freeing. And so I. <laughs> Wearing pants makes you claustrophobic. Sometimes. Got to get them off. <laughs> <laughs> got to get them off. Uh, no, I think that. So I don't know. I guess that. That's something that I that I relate with, and and I think that it's a it's a nice way to sort of get us on Paul's side. Even you know, if the book was about him writing fast cars, I probably wouldn't God, be on his side. Fucking fast cars, <laughs> the worst book ever written. Well, it's just it's just funny because it's like you know the whole hobbling, but this is really just the humbling. Like I mean, he just I know that's like the cheesiest fucking thing, but like I that's like a joke you would make. I, but you yeah. just said it earnestly. I know I did say it earnestly, but could, I I will say that that that's literally all that's happening in this book because he comes in is this like prideful sort of um total 80s blockbuster writer uh just like stephen king because he's like ah, you know i'm going to hollywood and i'm gonna go back to new york and i gotta go see my buddies and it's it's pretty much like every one of the characters that king always writes about that that um you know hangs out at like cocktail parties yeah. and all this other stuff it has like this high life and he's i mean it's he's been emasculated literally to the point where he thinks that his man gland is going to be cut off so like oh, I, yeah. I think like man the man gland you know? <laughs> and, and by the end of it he does get humbled like he has to like figure out you know he has to be content with sort of his own career and realize the kind of privilege that he actually does yeah. have and, and if I, that's not Stephen King talking to himself I'll yeah. Yeah. my own left foot and eat it yeah. <laughs> seriously like so I for me that's why I think Paul was interesting because I think his arc is actually pretty great in this like yeah. I think it's actually a really well um, uh, defined and like nuanced arc I usually can't stand like throwing that word nuance around but I really do think that his arc here is is, yeah. is pretty like there's, there's a lot of introspection that comes to it and again throwing that term around inside baseball like this does this does feel like it could only have come from, or at least this book and especially this character could only have come from someone who has literally experienced the same type of thing because there's so many small details in this, just as like as in terms of like the stuff that you do as a writer, but also just the industry like knowledge that you really wouldn't be able to get even just from like interviewing random people. Like there's so much little knowledge that he has on here that's so the specificity that he welds into Paul's life that just comes from such a real sense of place and from such a real era. Mm -hmm. Like, that's why I also enjoyed was just seeing the sort of nostalgia of like when writers could actually be to this level, you know, with the, you know, obviously you have like the JK Rowlings and you have the, the big writers that are out there still today. Um, but nothing compared to this, like this is, this is like him almost like trying to weld his own life with like William Goldman, uh, Mm -hmm. in a way. And which ironically he would actually write the screenplay for this. But, um, yeah, so I, I in that respect, there's a lot of knowledge and deep set depth to to Paul that I enjoy. Um, Lara, do you like Paul? 
No. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with everything you just said about his character arc and, and finding him interesting and enjoying the process. But no, I mean, I, and uh, Randall, you're exactly right. I would want to punch him in the balls repeatedly, except he's been hurt enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I think like how he's smart. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. but the book... The book plays the same trick at least three times where you think that Paul has won over on Annie, and mm-hmm. it's so not true. But that's why Because I love. you're so allied with Paul's uh, like intrepidness in these moments, and you're rooting for him because he, the situation is so horrible, and you think, like, wow, he really did pull it off. And also, he has really good psychoanalytic insights into mm-hmm. how Annie operates. And they both yes. do. So it's like this like outsmarting the wits. But the thing I love so much about it is this thing that almost feels even more of a commentary today of what we were talking about before of the, the, you know, the reactionary viewer of you can dream up things in your head as solutions, but what his, his could you or can you game that he plays as a writer Mm -hmm. can't apply to real life, which is something that, which is so funny because we are literally reading a book. Mm -hmm. And so there's, again, there's that meta fact of it. Mm -hmm. Like, well, it's like, well, no, we are reading a book and you should, you should be able to dream up the situation out of it. So there's this really cool layered, um, uh, dichotomy between of like what he can imagine up and dream up on the page and what he can do like actually in this room even though we're reading a fiction book that I just loved like I thought that that in that sense is very smart meta uh, commentary and I love how it pits against someone like Annie who is has really come to grips with the reality of the world like he's in awe of mm-hmm. Annie of being able to dream of what she can do to get to dispose of this state policeman and so are we and then we're also there is some pathos to a guy who's literally his life is coming up with that can you and he can't even do it for himself like that there's some sort of pathos to that for me with this character so yeah. like that that stuff was i don't know i thought that was cool another question yeah do you like annie wilkes i do like annie wilkes. <laughs> I, well, here's the thing there are multiple times in this book where I really did feel bad for this character. Mm-hmm. And there's something that, and I think that that's something that Paul actually feels towards the end of the story. Um, when he sees like little glimpses of her come out with that sort of wholesomeness of, Oh wow. Like in a, in a different environment that she might've been raised, she might've been a really great person. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. see little peaks about that. And I, and for me, I hate villains that are just so black and white. And like, Mm -hmm. I found a lot of really cool, like cracks and crevices into this character that were really awesome. Well, there's something so damaged about her. Like what I'd forgotten from my previous read was that she's not just evil. There's like genuine mental illness going on here. Like when she self harms herself, you know, she like, like draws blood from her forehead. She like bites her lip. She like literally gashes herself in front of him. Um, just like, you know, very, uh, very casually and that and that was like really disturbing to me when I was reading it and also those moments when he would talk about her blanking out mm-hmm. and like when she's sitting by his bed and I remember he talks about her blanking out for like three straight minutes and just staring into the middle distance and then when she started talking again it was like no time had passed like that's you know you're dealing with somebody who is very mentally disturbed uh, and is not just like a cold-blooded killer but somebody who clearly just has a lot of darkness like in their soul but she's so. a perfect foil like here's i'm just going to do this one description of her that that's really towards the end which is kind of crazy Th- on page 343 of uh what is this pocket pocket books no, edition the pocket. with uh, the <laughs> can- kangaroo captain kangaroo on the side uh paul was dismayed by the depth of this slyness he's referring to annie he suddenly realized that annie was doing exactly what he could not she was playing can you in real life maybe he thought that's why she doesn't write books she doesn't have to 
that's such a cool dichotomy. Like that that, that yeah. that's such a cool foil. I mean, and and I can see why King is just so proud of this character because out of all his villains, this is probably the most complicated villain I think that he's maybe written in a story mm-hmm. to date, possibly. Like I, I mean, I can, I'm trying to think back on like, I mean, Stilson is pretty complicated in a sense and has like a sordid past, like Annie. But I mean. I would argue this is easily his most like complicated villain because he can't really lean on supernatural or any sort of deus ex machina. Mm-hmm. Here. Like, she's such an admirable creation because she's a complicated character who cares about an incredibly simple, basic mm-hmm. bitch yeah. thing like mm-hmm. this romance heroine. Mm-hmm. But you have to become so involved with her psyche to see why that might be the case. And this book has such a strange balance of sensitivity and non-sensitivity totally. to like various issues. <laughs> like I was pretty staggered by how sensitively he treats Annie Wilkes uh-huh. or at least some aspects of her in that we do kind of sympathize with her at times. And we do get the impression that she is fully realized mm-hmm. how she thinks is something that Stephen King has spent a lot of time thinking about. And, She's totally batshit crazy, but her mental illness isn't equated to something that might be harmful in the real world. Like, um, we don't get the sense that, like, King is, like, preying on anyone with depression here. And we do get the sense that there are strange urges in her that she could control. And, like, there is evil in there, too. And, like, Mm -hmm. it also feels like a baseline for, like, the terrifying trope that Umbridge will later come to occupy in the Harry Potter universe, which is like this matronly woman who has sociopathic Mm -hmm. tendencies. Poisoned honey. I think is the, yeah, I always loved that descriptor. (laughs) Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I guess, you know, not only does he realize her so well, but he also like mythologizes her because Mm -hmm. uh, he, you know, the first, that whole idea that, She's solid throughout, you know, that she is a statue. And that's something that I feel like, uh, you know, he plays with in the misery sections uh, with Hezekiah, like the stuff that he says, the idea that, um, you know, the goddess is made of stone and that's her power. That's what makes her strong is because she's made of stone and there's something. And so I feel like and then we do see that as as emotional as she gets. Uh, about misery in the novel and her relationship with Paul, when it comes to violence, she handles it just so like matter of factly, mm, you know, like just it, terrifying. Yeah, it doesn't face her. Like after she kills the cop, the way he describes the way she disposes of the body, and it's just very calm. Well, know? it goes back into like King's sort of ways of just turning things into monsters, yeah. like just monsters. I mean, she's very Cujo like. Like the whole idea of the cop coming back at the end, yeah. just absolutely parallel Cujo, Cujo to me, except you know Cujo being Annie Wilkes like and just the way that even you know there's that sense of hope of like oh the cop coming out walking around and even the way that she approaches him is so similar to that scene with Bannerman at the Mm -hmm. the, the ranch except that you're dealing with a human being here and I think that's kind of like the genius of King is that he I think and I think that's something maybe he even realized with this book was that he could actually lean back on those genre tropes while also kind of just you know he could go 90 miles an hour at that and then kind of double back and go like you know 55 and 60 and just really kind of slowly kind of carve out her character a little bit more Mm -hmm. and the way that he's able to pivot between monster and man is I think you know that's like a stroke of genius in this book I think like the fact that he's able to do both of those things and and again that kind of taps into the whole meta nature of him wrestling with the horror genre itself in here but Mm -hmm. um, I I think that's part of the success to Annie is that you can have both here and she is both for sure even if there is some sort of 
you know, quibbles of like mental illness and stuff the way he talks well, I, about I'm here. really interested because Laura, you talk with a lot of forthrightness about mental illness, um, like on your Twitter and like, yes, I want to know your opinions on Annie. I mean, I found her to be a, a wonderful villain, a fascinating character. Um, the aspects I didn't like about how Paul was describing her mental illness is he, he does this at numerous points. Um, he feels like he's an expert in something because he spent a day with an expert um, and in this, he's like, oh, during my researches for oh, whatever yeah. book it was, like I spent a day in the, you know, psychiatric wing of a hospital. An and asylum. I, I think yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's like, okay, one, this is 1987. This was when uh, the edition of the DSM was the DSM-3. Um, 1987 was actually the year that homosexuality was removed from the DSM is like a mental disorder. So one, he's speaking with such, you know, certainty about psychiatric illness at a time that I just, I just can't deal with it. I, and I, I realize this is me looking at it as an artifact of the past, but it's also like never, ever, ever be so certain when you're talking about mental illness, yeah. because like our definitions of it are constantly and radically changing so that was just another mark against paul sheldon for me was that he was like oh i know what she's got i got the diagnosis um and the way he sort of talked about um psychosis being linked to a narcissistic ego um i'm like is that accurate i don't know like i i mean but so i think that annie is actually way more complicated and to reduce her into like a specific mental illness that she may or may not have i mean she's definitely the character's undoubtedly crazy but i just i think can be a little reductionist to look at her through only that lens um he also kind of negates his she's so you know uh because he, he basically is like whenever she does something violent he barely she barely remembers it it almost reads more like a possession narrative at certain mm -hmm. points um there's there's one part on my um my scribner uh blue book edition as i'm gonna think of it um <laughs> on page 277 she's doing something awful to him. Um, and then she says she grinned at him. There was craziness in that grin, but he saw something else in it as well. Something that really frightened him. He saw conscious evil in it, a demon capering behind her eyes. And I don't know, I underlined that and just wrote, Hmm. Um, <laughs> because it's like, is she consciously evil? Like, I don't, I mean, you certainly, you could see how he would feel that way. And what is consciously evil? You know, what does that mean? I, I don't know where I'm going with this. I've got a lot of like curling thoughts about it. Um, but I think you've gone somewhere with it. Have I? Yeah. Yes. Have I arrived? I feel like the question is, is like that I'm interested in is like, is Stephen King trying to also to again take Paul down a peg in his kind of like stupid and correct assumptions? Yeah. Or is King being like, well, I don't know, she's probably got a little of this and a little <laughs> well, of that. And like, <laughs> exactly. I agree with Paul Sheldon. Exactly. I, yeah. And I can't quite tell where it lands. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, I love reading about Annie. I want to, every page she's on, I'm like totally hooked. You know, I, I think she's a fascinating character. And, and I love, I kind of meant to reference this in the form and structure, just the whole, um, you know, memory lane thing and the fact that he learns so much about Annie through a book yeah, that she leaves yeah. out and wants him to read, you know, yeah. just that as a, as a structural thing is super interesting. And, you know, because she, as a storyteller reveals little, but as a story writer with her clippings, she reveals everything. Um, and so it's kind of like she wants to be found out. She wants him to sort of, she sadistically wants him to understand her. Or maybe it is just that she wants to be understood because she's been so left alone in this world mm -hmm. um, up up there where everyone is out to get her and she's had to cloister herself off. She's complicated. 
I'm going to say she's a complicated lady. <laughs> well, I find her marriage really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because just the fact that she was married and that he left her for what, mental cruelty, <laughs> like I think is the phrase yeah, that's yeah. used. <laughs> and it's like, uh, but we don't learn a lot about the marriage. No. Well, okay. This leads to a point that I think Bring it. Is, is another thing that I waffle over in this novel. I both appreciate it and there are points at which it is so prevalent that i'm like oh stop king is so careful not to sexualize annie to make it to make sure that we know there is absolutely nothing sexual about Mm -hmm. this uh internment of like paul sheldon um to the point where like it's in my misery section when she is first described it's not just that she's solid she just has no accessible female orifices (laughs) to her i wrote that down too i think i have that in pound cake (laughs) like it's crazy like the use of orifices was so bizarre it's just like yeah that's usually when i look at someone when i meet them for the first time i go do they have any accessible orifices (laughs) accessible (laughs) i do and and again like i do i think that solidity stuff is so interesting and i love the like lack of hiatus or whatever in there um but to also tie that to like and that means right she's not curvy like Like, i'm interested i'm interested in that description in the in the concept of her being uh you know what's the word i'm looking for like godlike in a sense or like a totem you know that that to me is very interesting but he does he does tie it to sexuality but i I do think it's a good decision on the whole like we would never we would not want to read the book where like Annie wants to rape Paul. No one no. wants to read that book. <laughs> Although, didn't she say that the the hitchhiker that she picked up, she had a sexual relationship yeah, with? Yeah, she did. And we Paul thinks, that's, Paul so thinks that's not true. Paul thinks that she made a pass at him and then he rejected her and she got angry. Right, right. Well, I right. think there's a lot of like mistrust that's in her life that it fuels a lot of her rage. You know, and if you look back on just even the book itself, it's all about her putting some sort of power over a situation and i have to imagine that power comes from feeling powerless as a, as a child in whatever situation in whatever home situation she mm-hmm. was in i mean there there seems to be that whenever the only the majority of the times that she gets enraged is when she feels that mr smart guy is yeah. you know is trying to pull a fast one on her um and uh and i feel like that's kind of probably easily what happened with the hitchhiker like she you know she look she says you know the the thing with the drawings which involves some king's dominion um is very interesting to me because i do wonder is that actually true did she really believe that because i don't necessarily feel whatever annie says is a lie yeah like i i don't i think she actually has strong convictions of not lying like i think that she actually believes what she says it's like if you if the lie is so good enough like you actually are going to believe it i feel like that's pretty much the her foundation so like when she says like Things like, you know, um, when she says to Paul, even after like literally all these awful things have happened, it's like, you know, um, by then you will finish the book and we'll be back in New York or Los Angeles or wherever it is you decide to go. And I'll be living my quiet life out here. Maybe we will correspond sometimes. Like, I really think she means that in that situation. From moment like, to moment, it changes, though. Exactly. Like what but, I think but, is interesting but, about her. But that, and that's the thing about anxiety about it, though. Like, I, I feel like it's like. I'm just going to like lean on personal experiences here for this, but like I've been on the spectrum from being bipolar for like 10 years now. Mm-hmm. I'm like a acute anxiety disorder. And one of the things about it is that it works almost kind of like an orgasm and you start building up as so much tension and so much anxiety that the littlest things will just set you off. Mm-hmm. And you, and it's not that you have any control over it. It's just that you find opportunities to expel a lot of this sort of angst that you've had and mm-hmm. maybe things that aren't actually 
that that are tied to you or tied to the specific thing that triggered you are going to come out also, which is why, you know, he sees in hindsight like, oh, well, it actually maybe really wasn't the me complaining about the typewriter. It was me withholding the idea that I have the power for the book and she mm. felt powerless on that. Totally. And, and, and I think a lot of that is what informs Annie's rage here is that a lot of the times when she's getting angry at Paul, she's only just letting loose things that have built up, which is why she has to always continue to go to the laughing place. Like she has to go back there and like reset and then to go yeah. to go through. And that is a lot of what suffering anxiety is. It's just, it's just this buildup. I always just see it in my head as, um, you know, like when you like play street fighter or something like that, and there's like the, the bar above you or like the life bar. Like I always see it like, Oh, how, how much are you going to be able to sustain until you have to get it out somehow, which yeah. is why you have vices. Like you have addiction, you have like the obsession. That's why she probably loved the cereals every week because mm-hmm. she it escaped her from that. It, she was able to pour herself into that. So she didn't have to think about the anxiety about that, which is why, why she wanted more pages from Paul as things were getting worse, yeah. you know, as things are getting crazier and crazier. She's like, I need to just read it. Let me just hear it. Because if she doesn't, she's going to have to go back to her thoughts. It's like that meme we were talking about before. Yeah. The, mm-hmm. the, the Ralph that's why thing. we get such an impression that she exists beyond these pages. Yeah. We get that one glimpse from Paul. That's like, Oh, maybe it was this thing. And from there, we are confident that like King has developed this woman mm-hmm. to behave in ways that, um, are consistent with her character when we don't see the whole character, but we just know like she's realized. Mm-hmm. I think it's like really, it's tough. It's tough to pull off. She's like predictable in her unpredictability. Like it's weird. And I, and I think it really helps the fact that he makes her incredibly intelligent while on mm-hmm. the surface, it, it's just like the judge a book by its cover sort of thing because mm-hmm. and she's so, she's like motherly and childlike yes. at the same time. Yes. Like it's so weird. I, I found that so compelling. Like how she has these little girl moments where she looks lost and stuff. And like, I don't know. I have relatives that feel that way that I always feel are like un- a little unstable and that, you know, I, I remember that feeling from childhood, you know, and it's just, am I the adult in this situation? Oh no. You know? And yeah, it, <laughs> it can't be me, <laughs> <laughs> but I found that to be very real, whether or not he accurately describes her, you know, diagnosis, he does latch onto some very real believable characteristics that feel relatable and feel very frightening. Yeah. Any other thoughts on Paul or Annie or Dwayne? Well, I love the the fact that um, we get it, as you mentioned, a lawnmower man. Yeah. <laughs> mm, yes. Lawnmower man, Dwayne. Do we want to talk about Lawnboy? I, all right. Well, well, before we get to that, I, I do want to ask <laughs> base, a, a little bit more on Paul and Annie for a second. Do we... Does, is, the, is the death for Annie over the top? Too over the top? Uh, for this book i think i think so especially yeah. if she dies with her hand on a chainsaw <laughs> yeah. i think i think the whole like is it is i guess satisfying at that point to have like book pages stuffed in her mouth and to see her witness what she thinks is the manuscript burning but it does feel like the only borderline supernatural thing in this book that she mm-hmm. she just won't she won't die yeah. like she should be dead yeah. she's a rasputin a real rasputin she is <laughs> like even with the fingers under the door oh it, yeah it, it was I, I don't know. It just, it felt like, I guess it's, I guess it's just, you know, great plotting and sense, you know, because I still thought that she was out there behind, you know, when he opens the door and she's standing there, I did have to reread that section real quick and be like, wait, wait, is she, is she really there? And yeah. obviously, you know, she's not, but I guess it does fit into the, the idea of like, she's still out there sort of feel, but I guess it's also like trickery on the narrator because he presents it that way mm-hmm. at the end. And so I, I guess like was, I guess that was the only thing I was like kind of chewing on, uh, after reading about it like was 
was am I all right with that sort of betrayal? Because that doesn't really happen so much in the rest of the book. And that the it's only towards the end when he actually starts fiddling with the details. Wait, did you say betrayal? Uh, almost. What yeah. betrayal? Well, the idea that like, you know, all of a sudden we, we are presented with pretty much all the stuff that that happens. Yeah. And then we only find out that she died until later on. Oh, later, yeah, yeah. At yeah. the thing in in a, in a weird sort of sense to just keep you on your feet i guess Mm -hmm. it's just show that that's maybe how he feels in his ptsd moment but i don't know i I did that i in terms of the any character i did wonder like what everyone else thought about that and how they they handle her demise between literally how she dies to i think she's let me go through them so she's she has she's burned yeah she gets all the champagne bottles that are on her glass she she falls on it right and then she's she's he's he's trying he wanted to hit the typewriter with her right like on the head yeah but she hits the back. back I think she trips over it three times she falls over it several times knocks her head on the mantle and yeah. in the mantle and then he chokes so, her with burning pages so we know that Annie is already this incredibly smart person is it little too convenient that she goes all the way to the barn instead of down the hall to get Paul yeah I mean that's where. There was two moments where I felt like things got really sensational. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, I mean, this is a book where she cuts off his foot with, with and then blow torches it and then cuts off his thumb and stuff. But like, that barn thing only exists yeah. so they can do that thing where you think she's still out there. Yeah. And that to me felt a little silly, mm-hmm. um, I think. And then same with the her running over the cop with the lawnmower, which is in my <laughs> misery section. It's um, I think those are just moments that feel a little silly uh, and take me out of the world a little bit because it felt so, you know, it felt so I don't know, raw and brutal. And then suddenly I'm getting stuff that you would see in sort of a C grade uh, King, like film adaptation. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously like literally there is that scene and uh, sometimes they come back again. It is. Oh <laughs> no, no, there is, there is. So I, I and I have one more uh, yeah. that's, that's more of just a, a, a fun, fun one. That's, re- you know, revolves around these characters in your own. Can you, at what point in Paul's narrative here would you feel you could have gotten out of it? Or can you, or do you feel like you could have gotten out of it? I mean, I don't, I probably would have died immediately. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, I don't know. I think that, and I think it's inter- I think it's an interesting point, but when the two cops show up and mm-hmm. he knows that they probably could have yeah. taken her, uh, but that's the point is I think that he was at that point, he wanted to exact his own revenge on her. So he didn't do that. But I mean, I think that, yeah, he probably would have been able to get away if he had done what he did with the previous cop with those two. So, mm. but yeah, I don't know about earlier though. Would you have tried to go upstairs? I don't think he could have. His legs are so fucking busted. He crawls a lot towards the end. My legs are so fucking busted. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, by the end of it, he's literally like commando. Like just going everywhere. All, but he's all healed up at that point. Yeah, he's yeah, more that's healed. That is true. All of his okay. strength, and he's he's uh, going into his what do you call it? Like berserker, berserker mode. <laughs> yeah. yeah, all yeah. the adrenaline. Yeah, <laughs> he's also so doped up too. In the yeah. Going. All right. And, my and- my fear, and this is again like I have literal nightmares about it because I think this might be the case. I think I would have gone. I would have been so cowed by the time that cop showed up that I would have been like, well, why would I yell? She's my friend. <laughs> so you would have gotten stock- you got a Stockholm syndrome? I have to write for her. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 the only, I guess the only thing I kept wondering is the, the fact that we never go upstairs. Was there really a phone up there? Hmm. A phone? Like a working phone. Who knows? It's kind of like the... Who the, would she call? I feel like the upstairs in this story 
is the FedEx package Castaway. <laughs> like the, the one thing that you just the one resource he doesn't try. And that kind of drives me nuts the entire, the entire, like, especially on that second trip, because I do feel he was healthy enough to get out of the wheelchair and maybe crawl out. Mm, of it, up I just don't stairs. think he could have done it. We'll and that we, we only know that like two cars have gone by in months and months and months. Yeah. Even if he got, to, if he crawled to the road, like she'd probably just find him out there after hours. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. There's a lot of things in this that remind me of funny games. Yeah. Uh, I mean, between the like meta, like, you know, reversing and going, oh, nope, that didn't happen mm-hmm. to the like every little place you go and everywhere you turn, it's a dead end, you know, running out into the road and then, you know, the killers are in the car, you know, he's envisioning all, all those scenarios. Um, yeah, I don't know. I honestly, yeah, I think I would just also have just immediately collapsed or like I would have like tried to kill myself. I would have OD'd on the pills. Yeah. I would yeah. have, that's what I would do. I yeah. like in every scenario where like, how would you survive this? I'm like, I would kill myself. <laughs> uh, so when you yeah. found that supply, you're yeah. all going yeah, I'm all like, in. I know what to do. <laughs> well, I like that King considered that though, because he very much gave like the whole idea of the Shurahazad. Shahrazad. Shahrazad. <laughs> like that he is the Shahrazad because he needs, he's keeping himself alive with the story, you know? Yeah. Like that's the only thing keeping him alive as it goes on. Because I think like King was probably nagging himself with the question. He's like, why doesn't he just kill himself, <laughs> you know, at that point? But yeah. I think that that's been that, that sort of is a very It's also important thing. that he's high. Yeah. Like a high percentage of the time. If you are left sober with these kind of thoughts, I think you'd probably reach for those pills way yeah. quicker. Oh, yeah. Navril. <laughs> Uh, any other thoughts on character? Because I got to tell you, uh, I'm feeling like moving into a very app section. Oh, it is an app section. Yeah, it is a section we named after this book. It is called Misery. And we're going to go there right now. She she died. She just slipped away. Slipped away? Slipped away? She didn't just slip away. You did it. You did it. You did it. You did it. Welcome to Misery. This is a section based on the book Misery. Which you're reading. Yes, which is what we're talking about. And this is where we talk about things that made us miserable or that we just didn't all that much care for in this book. I already mentioned one of mine, which is, um, (laughs) and maybe it's just the image of Annie riding a lawnmower that made me laugh a little bit, but just uh, her stabbing the cop with the cross, which I thought was kind of cool. And then literally just coming into the shot, uh, puttering in on a, on a lawnmower and running over his head. It just felt a little bit uh, silly um, in this book where I the pain and the, the assault, everything had been kind of, I don't know, just very matter of fact and brutal. And that suddenly I was getting sort of a cartoon murder, you know, happening here. And that was, I think, uh, one of my miseries. Hmm. I guess it comes from the sense of time and place. And I think this is going to kick off like a lot of the discussion. I think we'll go into just how King portrays uh, certain people, but maybe it's because there wasn't Twitter and there wasn't YouTube and all this other stuff. And, and he's really just kind of basing it on his own sort of knowledge of what the genre seems to be at the time or in the stereotype, but just his portrayal as this one note fan really kind of rubbed me the wrong way because just that's just not the reality like and 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 who's a one note well the the one note fan for misery like paul's like fans the way that paul sees well yeah that's just how he sees them true but that also comes into literally everything else he's talking about the writer industry which literally is stuff that king's baking into it from his own prior knowledge so it just felt very like 
well, they're romance novels, so they're all going to be the same housewife that has nothing else to do but read these novels, which just isn't true. Like, but it's like, the demographic. Yeah, I just felt it was it was a little lazy. Like, where, whereas everything else has a lot of complex notions and diatribes, and even down to when he's discussing like the grieving of fictional characters, and he brings up the whole like a, you know anecdote about the librarian that or the the person that he worked with at the mm-hmm. library, uh, grieving the characters, and how everyone has to deal with that sort of feeling of a fictional character being gone and that weird relationship. That had complexities to it. But anytime he would describe the actual fan, it was the same fucking thing over and over again. It was just like, oh, yeah, you know, this, you know, this, this middling housewife or this. But I think it's like he resents misery. So he resents the fan. Yeah, I I just felt it. It it felt a little like when people go, oh, the sci-fi geek that just sits in his basement. It just for me that. Yeah, but that's true. Oh, you think so? <laughs> uh, well, I'll have you know that I'm a huge Star Wars fan, and I go to the gym like every day. Uh, no, okay, no. So, no, I just it, for me, it just it, it felt very like of its time of like this is how stereotypes are born. Like, and sure, for sure. me, that 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 was literally the only thing I just kept going. Like, uh, you, you don't have any other examples, any other anecdotes? There's not one other guy like or other person that's out there that like literally was like that, that kind of shocked you a little bit. There has to be. There has to be at one point. It almost seems related to like how Paul and King view writing as this like grand, scary, noble profession that mm-hmm. like the fans are all like beneath them in a, in a very similar way. The plebes. <laughs> the plebes. Um, I really hated how in a book that again is trying to be very careful about not sexualizing Annie and in fact not having anything to do with sex in the book, it opens with a rape metaphor and yes. closes with a rape yes. metaphor. Yes, yes, I flagged this too. Mm-hmm. It It's so strange and glaring and it almost feels like he's trying to make up for the fact that there's no mentions mm-hmm. of any kind of sex throughout it's just it's just bad it's well, just well, when gross. you say close is that when, when he's like laying on her yeah yeah, oh, yeah. yeah i'll and rape he, you he, like yeah he basically she's first she rapes him to life with her breath in the mm-hmm. in the resuscitation oh, segments yes. and then while he's like strangler and he's like so I, he basically says like so i raped her <laughs> but like i raped yeah. her with my hands and like i've got to like rape the life out of her it's like he gets raped in and then he gets wants to rape her out and it's like, well, he's ah. like suck the book suck the book yeah, yeah. suck yeah. my book yeah suck like, my book, i was mommy. like what are you doing dude <laughs> yeah. like that was a big line you just snorted <laughs> like, uh no i agree I, I had written those things down um another thing i had was um i this was a this was a necessary plot point but it just annoyed me and it made me mad at paul so it's not really a problem but dude like you only have one copy of your book in your possession like <laughs> yeah. you finish a book you don't have a single copy anywhere and it, like even in the book he acknowledges he's like everybody told me i shouldn't yeah. do that but i did it anyways and i'm just like that pissed me off it felt a little convenient it felt well it felt convenient and it just felt like dumb <laughs> I'm just like, no, this guy would not do that. Like, it just made me mad. I mean, I understand it needed to be that way for the story, but it's just like, it, even if it was like a floppy disk or something, I don't know. It's like, which I mean, I guess maybe in the 80s, he wouldn't have been writing that way, but it's just like. Um, it would have been like five floppy disks. Like he would have had to have one of those like plastic packs. of the- But I just got so annoyed. I'm just like, it just made me mad because I'm just like, dude, that is stupid. Anyways, yeah, but even when even his his reasoning for it is pretty good because he talks about the the idea that he would have to go to a copier place and it would feel real at that point. I don't and buy and it. I and I and I can see that reasoning for that because there's definitely been situations where I mean, my dad was a publisher of magazines like for ten to thirty years, like for thirty years or so, and 
still is actually. And he would always say whenever he'd come home and tell me about some meeting, he'd be like, well, I don't really want to talk about it because it hasn't happened yet. Like, it's mm. just, it's still in development. And I see where there's some superstitions tied to that. Like, I've definitely seen that in the past with him for sure, where he'd be like, yeah, we had a great meeting and we talked about things, but mm, I'm not going to think about it until it actually happens. And yeah. I feel like that's kind of like the reasoning he gave for this. Having said that, it is very convenient to be like, well, there's no more fast cars, you know, like, uh, so. Uh, other moments of misery that you guys had. Um, so pretty much all the, like, Africa stuff. It's so <laughs> bad. It's so bad. I mean, like, and I get that he's writing within the conventions of this, like, gothic fiction in, in an era in which they you know, spoke of, uh, of things just, you know, inherently in a racist way, but like even, and, and there's two layers of Africa stuff going on because one, he's the rare bird from Africa, <laughs> the rare bird, the, um, rainbow the, sad, bird. the sad eyes. Um, and so he's making references to Africa for that reason. But then also even down to seeing Annie as this like totem, whenever something seems incomprehensible or terrifying and to him in some way, he's like, Oh, Africa, like it's like a weird stone idol, and uh, it, and basically, like I don't know, the whole plot of Misery's Return is some like <laughs> Lovecraft ass, Joseph Conrad ass bullshit, and I can't deal with it. I was just, I was like, as soon I, I wrote in the margin, oh no, multiple times. Uh, I can't, I just can't do it. Yeah, it's softened somewhat by it being a book within a book, but it's like the Hezekiah stuff yeah. is is so. Like, and you absurd. get the sense that King is definitely on board with what Lara's talking. Like the the very opening of before we get anything is this weird page that just says Goddess yes. Africa, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, and that's he screams at the cop. He's like Africa. <laughs> it's so weird. Yeah, it is all I could think of though is just Toto. <laughs> Every time you brought it up, because we just had to hear that fucking song all year because no. of Weezer. I just all I kept thinking was like. And it's like around the same time that the song was, you know, pretty popular, you know, so I did, you know, it's but. just like, I guess on this podcast, we've talked a lot about how, like, when he writes people of color, they always get really intense dialects, oh, you yeah. know, but he doesn't do that with most other characters, with a lot of other characters. Oh, he doesn't with Mike Hanlon. Thank God. No, he doesn't with Mike, no, but no. it's like, it's more when they're supporting characters. Mm -hmm. And uh, like, I mean, and this goes back, I'll always remember trucks where everybody talked, you know, just mm -hmm. like normal human beings. And then the black cook came by and suddenly it was like, why is he talking like he's from the 1800, like, you know, a stereotypical 1800 slave or whatever. It's like, that's the stuff that drives me nuts. And that's what that, the way he writes Hezekiah, it's like so bad. Yeah. Although in terms of the genre that he's written like if you look at like yeah, we I mean, mentioned Lovecraft like Lovecraft would write the same type right. of thing. Right. And I mean so, that's, like, that's why I'm saying it's softened it's, a bit by the yeah, fact it is that definitely it's, it's a thing that Paul's writing not with King is writing. Yeah. But it's still like I mean I didn't read that section because it was just like I can't do this. It's like, just so <laughs> it's just so much. I was like, um, eh, yeah, you don't have to do this." Yeah, it's like I'm not sure if it's self-aware enough. <laughs> Does it quite get there? Um I agree. And I mean I I flagged again you, you, this is all of this has the same issue. It's a, a relic of the era in which it's written. You know, it's a, it was written in the 1980s. Um, the protagonist is a dude and the villain is a woman. Hmm. Um, causes a few problems. And there's like a lot of misogyny throughout in Paul's, just the way he thinks, you know, and, and just little anecdotes he uses where he's uh, getting Annie's editor notes. And he says, uh, 
he thought of this as his can I help you lady expression. That was because most editors uh, were like women who drive into service stations and tell the mechanic oh, yeah. to fix whatever it is mm-hmm. that's making that knocking sound under the hood or going wonk wonk inside the dashboard and please have it done an hour ago. And, you know, thinking about waking up next to a, a hot, you know, a girl that he thought was hot at night. Uh, you know, and she's then, a goblin in the morning. Goblin. Yeah, he yeah. also uses the word goblin a bunch, and it's like what in Bell Dame, and it's like fuck off, you know, just like I can't. Like, <laughs> and the and the divorce thing, where yes. it's like women always leave because they get fed up. Mm-hmm. Well, his perception of women in this is awful, like in the sense that, like, even during all this torture and pain, we get a lot of inner monologue with him, and he's had like past relationships, and we never get any of it. Mm-hmm. He never even meditates on the... We get the, Jones bra. Yeah. Well, it's nice to have. And a trip to Hawaii where he sees the suckling pig. But but it's just, it's bizarre to me. Like, and then maybe that's just his his way of showing that like, oh, well, I'm so, so raptured up in the industry and in the, in the, in the life that I don't <laughs> see anything other than, you know, a buxom blonde that I wake up to in the morning or whatever. But like, I... Yeah, that, that was definitely like a weird like... Also... Know, in the books that he, in the book that he's writing, yes. Misery has no dialogue. Right. She can't remember anything. She spends half of it buried alive, and the other half sleeping covered in bees. Bees, yes. so. not the bees. Not the bees. <laughs> That's all I could think of. Um, yeah, no, and then yeah, we get Jeffrey and Ian instead. Yeah, the boys. Oh, yeah. and Mrs. What's her face? Oh yeah, oh, Miss Havisham. Yeah, whatever. yeah. I don't know what it is. She's like, oh my dairy, and like, yeah, it's yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else that made you miserable? All right. So I had bookmarked a lot of the writing shit, but the worst one I think that, that encapsulates what I'm talking about is when he turns in the second version and she loves it. Mm-hmm. And this is on page 180 of the pocketbooks. Yet something in her attitude as she stood in the doorway fascinated him. It was as if she was a little frightened to come any closer, as if she thought something in him might burn her. <laughs> it wasn't the subject of premature burial that had done it, and he was wise enough to know it. No, it was the difference between his first try and this one. That first one had had all the life of an eighth grader's How I Spent My Summer Vacation theme. This one was different. The furnace was on. Oh, not that he had written particularly well. The story was hot, but the characters as stereotyped and predictable as ever. But this time he had been able to at least generate some power. This time there was heat baking out from between the lines. Amused, he thought she felt the heat. I think she's afraid to get too close in case I might burn her. <laughs> Just the pow- the power of the writer. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> I did think that was a bit much. <laughs> there was also a moment where he got like kind of silly and he he was talking about I don't have the exact page, but he was talking about a horoscope and he just and it was like in a macabre like context and he calls it the horror scope <laughs> and it was like cheeky in like a way that the rest of the book isn't and i was like what are you doing mm-hmm. anything else the lines from fast cars are really funny yeah i don't have no wheels tony bonasaro said walking up to the girl coming down the steps and i am a slow learner but i am a fast driver <laughs> this is like, this is his my literary fiction i know and he's like he's like this way like after he finished it he's like well you just won a national book award or whatever he says later like it was the closest you got to the truth yeah. the fucking truth <laughs> it would go on to become the fast and the furious franchise yes <laughs> hell yeah yeah, the, the, you know what's funny is like I guess some of the things that that started getting a little tiring to me was it, King loves gallows humor. Yeah, and I usually like it a lot too. Um, but a lot of it got 
I felt like he leaned on it a little much sometimes in this in this uh, in, in the book, uh, and, and to the point where it was almost sort of distracting because at some points I was kind of confused on like whether or not he was actually even terrified anymore. And I guess terror kind of came mingles with that sort of humor, like you kind of just start laughing when you're just like that manic about things. But it got a little too cheeky sometimes, like when he would do like the parentheticals. Like King loves to do this thing where he'll like he'll like have a an early sort of. Um, you know that 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 illusion where he talks about how the mother was talking about how Paul's like this imaginative writer, mm-hmm. and King loves to just have that sort of repetition callback in so his vivid. books. Vivid. So, <laughs> so, so vivid. And for me, it was just like it was like ah, get, get the hell out of here. Like, <laughs> like I, I found myself like almost like in my head, just like shooing it away, just like all right, stop. Did like, you like the rinse one? Uh, I thought it's the same thing. He he. Oh, I'm trying to think of the example of an, of a past book that he does that in. He does it in like every book. Yeah, every <laughs> book, every book. Like, but there was one. Maybe it was the. It's. I guess it's the the beep beep thing in in uh, in it is is fine with me. But there's been there was one recent book last year that drove me fucking absolutely nuts when the the repetition because it wasn't that compelling to me. Yeah. And I don't think that this was very compelling. Like we get it. All right. Yeah. You're a writer and you come up with ideas. Like I don't need to be reminded of this. Like one like sort of forgetful conversation that your parent, your mother had like with a neighbor or something like it just didn't seem I don't know I I was of two minds about it because it it did kind of annoy me at moments but I also thought it kind of worked in this context because so much of this book is the rhythm of it mm-hmm. and the rhythm of his thoughts and coming in and out of these sort of hazy things and like and that's to me where those kind of half fractured recollections kind of make sense yeah. it's like you're you're doped up you're in pain yeah, you're that's sick true. Um, and so for that reason, it just added to the sort of poetic, like dragging you along rhythm of, of the whole story, but it, it was also maybe one or two less. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, and he does it like, so I guess the, the worst, I, I'm trying to think like the, the, can you, you know, baby, can you dig your man? in the stand oh, yeah. he does the lyrics to that like oh, non-stop yeah. in that book <laughs> mm-hmm. and i think that's like the example it just kind of reminded me of that and there's another one in christine that i'm, I'm starting to remember now at this point that it, where he did that maybe something that LeBay says or something but it, it just it just comes off as distracting sometimes for me because i'm just like i, I want to keep going you know yeah. and i don't need to have these pauses i'm the type of person that I need to like absorb everything. Like, and so if there are distractions like that, I'm going to see it. I can't just gloss over it. Like, you know, like Dan's talked on this podcast, how he's able to kind of speed read sometimes. Cause he just can find like the real beats and just mm-hmm. get to them. I am not that like, no, I'm like yeah. the person at the museum. That's like, Oh, there's another passage here to read. Oh, cool. <laughs> I'll go read it. And then like, meanwhile, all my friends will be like, we, we get going we're mm-hmm. done with this exhibit. So for me, yeah, that was kind of a, a slight misery, not that bad, but it was just enough sure, where I was just like, sure. uh, not this again. Uh, one final misery. Anybody? No. Well, you know what I hear, Colin. Oh, the book's called Misery. Oh yeah. Uh, I hear the rusty gates of the cemetery calling. So let's pull up our hearse to the cemetery, get out, and uh, let's browse those headstones. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person but it ain't that person because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all welcome to the cemetery this is the section of the podcast where we talk about the things that scared us spooked us made us squirm in our beds that we're chained to uh what freaked you guys out i'll start (laughs) <laughs> then don't ask a question, Randall. <laughs> Look, this is the way I host. 
<laughs> let me just say that I even like in the 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 way that it opened in a way with her, uh, you know, giving him mouth to mouth or whatever. Uh, I think the the thing that really upset me was the way he described all the like vanilla cookies and chocolate ice cream and chicken gravy and peanut butter fudge on her breath because like you know breath that smells like food or, or or things like that is just something for me that I get really ill by like if I smell like you know that kind of stuff on other people's breath and especially if it's like right in my face like I remember taking a quiz in school in high school and somebody next to me it was like eight in the morning and somebody was eating uh cool ranch doritos and the mm. smell of them at eight in the morning made me so sick i had to go throw up in the bathroom <laughs> and so it's like always been a weird thing with me is like i just don't like to when i'm i guess like i just don't want to smell food necessarily uh or at least like i don't know it depends on the time and the context but uh, no, that, I'm the same way. That description made me so ill. It, and that's something that's lingered with me. Like when I think about the the foulness, like it kind of goes back to, um, it, and it continues and evolves with like, even when she's talking about like the gravy, there's something about like, like for me, like food stuff is so gross. Like I, I if someone has an open wound and is like, you know, gushing from blood, I will immediately run over and, and, and like suppress it and try to help <laughs> it. I don't, that like, doesn't, my gravy. <laughs> yeah. If it was like, if there was like spilled gravy that had been there for like a few days, I like recoil or like, you know, if there's like shit on the ground or something like that, I'll lose my mind. But like blood guts doesn't mind for me, but it's like the little things of like her, her bits and details of like all that dried food on her, like that stuff to me. And like the, the cookie breath, oh, yeah. it's that the specificity of that stuff is so gross to me. And just the idea of being in that environment made me mingled with the claustrophobia just like got me like ugh. Did you guys like his meals like you feed him soup and no, I would, a single I, egg and no. toast tips <laughs> toast tips the toast tips i would i would enjoy the the soups no because you can't tell what's in the soup sometimes so i would be Oh what about the bucket Oh, oh that's the number <laughs> I, I actually I wrote have that, that down Yeah on page 33 um when she just, she leaned over him like a monolith, the bucket slightly tipped. He could see the rag twisting slowly in its dark depths like a drowned thing. He could see a thin scrum of soap on top. Part of him groaned, but none of him hesitated. He drank quickly, washing the pills down, and the taste in his mouth was as it has been on the occasions when his mother made him brush his teeth with soap. Like, uh, just the idea of seeing the rag there and just wondering, like, how much shit has been on the ground. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, that's just killed me. That stuff was a hypochondriac that fucking destroyed me. <laughs> My cemetery section is like, page 24, legs. Page 50, legs. <laughs> page 102, bone jelly. <laughs> like, yeah, I remember I, that. The way I, that they're described, the way he always describes them as just being, like, unnatural and crooked. So, Or uh, the salt dome of his knee. His knee. Yeah. I, this is, like... My, if you've listened to our Dance Macabre episode, you know that this is one of my greatest fears is, is bodies being fucked up in a way where you can't move to fix them. You're also under the care of someone who wants to modify your body and doesn't really know what she's doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So from page 11, it, it, it says that he's scared because she, he realizes she doesn't know what she's doing as much as she thinks she mm-hmm. does. Yes. She was a nurse, but that's only going to take her so far. Right. And his legs are a fucking mess and he can't even look at them. I This book made me so uncomfortable in a physical way with all of the leg stuff and the amputation stuff. Like I can't even choose... A passage. And I will also say 
this book did that thing that King does so often where you know you're in like three quarters of the way through, you're in the middle, and it seems like he's going to get out. or mm-hmm. he's, And you know because you have you are <laughs> holding the rest of the yeah. book, you're like, this is going to get so bad yeah. so soon because <laughs> the book is nowhere near over. Exactly. And that, you know, I also found the body horror stuff. I have the same exact fears and found the same things disturbing. Um and I, more so than the actual moments in which they happened, the echoes that they leave in Paul's mind where he like when she takes the needle out and he's in the basement mm. and, he, and he thinks she's going to, you know, do something, modify something again. Um, and you just know that for the rest of his life, he's going to be having those intrusive thoughts and those those fears. And I thought that it was a very accurate like uh, portrayal of sort of trauma and, and PTSD type thought you know like that the way that those horrible moments come back to you you know i i thought just knowing that he would be plagued with that for the rest of his life is what i'm finding myself thinking about now that i've read the novel it's yeah. just like those things flashing back and flashing back and you can never escape them yeah the debasement and like when he feels guilt uh and he, he starts like crying because of the guilt he feels and stuff like i don't know just like those moments uh He's just so pathetic, you know? Well, speaking and, of pathetic, yeah. uh, how about on page 51 of the Pocketbooks edition when he says he had to urinate. He laid the top sheet oh, over yeah. his penis, hoping to create a crude filter and urinated through it into his cupped and shaking hands. He tried to think of it as recycling and drank what he had managed to hold and then licked his wet palms. Here is something else he reckoned he would not tell people about if he lived long enough to tell him anything. So he's yeah. like drinking his own urine, which is mm-hmm. like, ah, oh, This is a weird opinion, but I was really surprised that we didn't dwell on the bedpan usage at any point it was kind of like use the bedpan mm-hmm. yeah but that's yeah. like that's like a terrible humiliating mm-hmm. thing that people uh-huh. go through and i was like how are we not dwelling on this if we're dwelling on some other stuff like yeah yeah, yeah like she didn't make him like i don't know scrub his own bedpan or anything even just, just like what that i've never used a bedpan and it must be kind of god awful like yeah. you, you, you you'd want to use a toilet <laughs> yeah you don't want to poop in bed no, no one wants to poop in bed <laughs> I, I also think that the, you know, the mind is a powerful thing. And if you, uh, you know, left to its own devices, like I think that that's one of the scariest things as we've already discussed in here. And the little things that she just kind of drops that King Weld's in there to like build her character up in her own mystery would send me over the edge. Mm-hmm. Like if I was Paul, just like laying there being like, what did she mean on the stand? I can't really ask her about that. What is that? What does that mean? Was it a stand for a parking ticket? Was it a stand for this? Like, no, it's probably for kill- serial killing. I would just go through such a psychosis with those small little details that she kept dropping and knowing that I can't move and can't, and I'm at her will and when like that, that to me added so much terror into this yeah. story. Mm-hmm. Um, just trying to figure that out or just trying to put myself in that position because as a reader, it's interesting because we want to, you know, like obviously figure it out ourselves, but trying to, you know, pair that with an actual survival mentality mm-hmm. is, oh God, that would. When he's holding the book and he's like, this book is so big. Yeah. And he hasn't <laughs> like read and like all of it yet. That's that exactly one. what you just said. It's like, uh oh, what's coming yeah, next? Yeah, like, the within of... <laughs> the book, within the book. Uh huh. I do like that King personifies the typewriter. Yeah. yeah. Classic King, just making it look like some like monster. Well, and it, it gets really unnerving, like once all the, the letters start dropping out mm-hmm. of the words, like there was a, the way it looked on the page was very unnerving to mm-hmm. me. And yeah. I like that a lot I, to her. There's actually not a lot of 
readerly suspense when she hurts him, Mm -mm. which is very scary to me. Yeah. 0.0 capacity for reasoning or bargaining with her. Yeah. You just know that when she's made up her mind to hurt him, she's Mm going to do it swiftly and like brutally. Yeah. And so when, when it becomes time for that again, I found, I found it very difficult to read. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've had this idea of like this punishment where like you, you wake up in a cell and there's a countdown clock and it, it resets at 24 hours, but at the, when it, you know, as it counts down, like you'll be taken to another room and just punished and there's no arguing with it. And then they throw you back in the room and the countdown clerk starts yeah. again. These are the things I think about, <laughs> um, but it had a bit of that, like it's coming and not a thing you can do. will change it. Right. That's yeah. That's fascinating. I, 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 I guess another part that freaked me out, like if we're talking about, I was mentioning earlier, I was kind of criticizing some of the, the more sensational moments of horror, but there was one that really worked for me. Only because it was presented in such a nightmarish haze. And Can that's, I guess? Yeah. It's when he thinks the dead cop is coming for him. No, but I do. <laughs> I did like that. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have when she puts his thumb on the birthday cake. Is that real? Well, that's the thing. I is can't you, tell. You don't tell either. And that's what I love about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So I'll just read a little bit of this section because I thought it was really well done. Um, so... She had cut off his she had cut his thumb off in the morning and that night she swept gaily into the room where he sat in a stupid ha- days of drugs and pain with his wrapped left hand held against his chest and she had a cake and she was bellowing happy birthday to you in her on key but tuneless voice although it was not his birthday and there were candles all over the cake and sitting in the exact center pushed into the frosting like an extra big candle had been his thumb his gray dead thumb the nail slightly ragged because sometimes he chewed it when he was stuck for a word and she told him if you you promise to be good, Paul. You can have a piece of birthday cake, but you won't have to eat any of the special candle. So he promised to be good because he didn't want to be forced to eat any of the special candle. And then it keeps going. And then it like devolves into like this uh, stream of consciousness kind of thing. So, yeah, I think it is like a nightmare that he's having, but it's presented in such a way where it exists in this place between reality the, and the and nail dream. is right in the pocket for me again. Yeah. And when he sees the scar on his severed foot, like yeah. that's right in the mm-hmm. in the like forced surgery zone that i i cannot deal with right and it's it's, it's part of that told torture porn era where you just see that you know it's like in like the texas chainsaw remake when you see the guy had like the the wedding ring for his girlfriend and all these like what could have been's or like in the past like when you have these moments like you know i hate the movie 31 uh but there's a scene where one of the the guys one of the idiot characters in that movie is talking about how they're hearing a song in this like horrific situation he's like man last time i heard this song i was like you know somewhere on the beach or something mm-hmm. like that and i always think that that's how, where my mind would drift off if yeah. i was sitting there in these situations i would just be thinking about man when was the last time i was doing this like oh wow well i guess two months ago i was actually just sitting here in you know a los angeles uh, hotel enjoying my life and to see like something that's actually being taken away that you have memories of that's like like in a, in someone's hand like that uh, that would that would just terrify and that's, me. That's like, why this is scary. Like losing that left foot and losing the thumb and contemplating that is so much more scary than like watching Hostel and watching them cut yeah, off an arm yeah. from a character that you don't know much about or like whatever. Yeah. Right? Because you see that personal tie and you realize that 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 whatever that thing that they're thinking about and talking about is gone forever now. And like they he does there is there was life to that. Mm-hmm. And you know I don't yeah. So that uh, I speaking of you know appendages being yeah. removed. i know we've been kind of uh slamming the the misery book a little bit but um 
the the actual misery's return mm-hmm. but i thought there was like a section in here that was really well written and kind of creepy there's actually a few sections i thought were pretty well, well written but like i there was one that was like really eerie that um dealt with uh the fingers in the, the coffin uh, on page 175 four days following the determent an elderly woman named mrs soames mrs Ra- mrs ramage knew her slightly had observed something white lying on the ground of the congressional searches cemetery as she entered it to put flowers on the grave of her husband who had died the previous winter it was much too big to be a flower petal and she thought it might be a dead bird of some sort as she approached she became more and more sure that the white object was not just lying on the ground but protruding from it she came two or three hesitant steps closer yet and observed a hand reaching from beyond the earth of a fresh grave, the fingers frozen in a hideous gesture of supplication. Blood-streaked bones protruded from the ends of all the digits save for the thumb. And just like, then when you obviously your mind is just going to think of, right. I mean, I always think of Kill Bill with the, the thing like that, but yeah. <laughs> just like the idea of like feeling the splinters oh. just keep going in there. Like, <laughs> Did you, there were, so before the hobbling, which was also in my cemetery, I think the most scared I got during this book were there are two little blips. One was when she says, um, you know, do you want the good news or the bad news? Mm-hmm. And she says, the bad news is like, I've known that you've been out. Oh. Yes. And you're like, uh, <laughs> what's going to happen? And then the second part was when he's like, what the fuck does pre-op shot me? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Those are great moments. That is totally like great. that realization when you, when you realize with Paul that she knew is so, it feels like, like you, it's like you're, it's, it's that feeling of like knowing you're going to get punished. Yeah. Uh, like I was feeling that like, cause you know, when your parents catch you doing something and it's like, and obviously the stakes are much higher in this, um, in this book, but it's like, I had that same sort of sense of dread and like doom. This you know? more than any other King book, maybe I've read made me put it like close it and put it on my lap and just like sigh and then pick it back <laughs> up again. <laughs> like totally. Because it's uh, so real. That's the thing. Like, you know, when you, you can put it away when you know how like farcical or you know sensational it is what this is so gritty and real in that moment and it's also inescapable and in ways that a lot of the horror that he's had even with his most grisliest book or the the grisliest book he's done pet cemetery there's a lot of escapable notions that just leave the fucking town um but in this like you can't go anywhere and you're forcibly put through the ringer literally through these things that are just awful i mean like she even says like oh no killing would be too easy you know i'm gonna i'm gonna torture you in other ways right. like, he wants to die other than just even having to not even just with the idea of getting more body horror but just the the possibility of having any more psychological horror too mm-hmm. and i think that's like when you're at that level of a you know in, in humanity like that's terrifying it's a really good setup with the inescapable thing and the mud thing you were talking about earlier i mm-hmm. feel like the temptation for king is always to be like well he can't escape because a b c d mm-hmm. and i will list all the particulars yeah. but in this one it's just so convincing even from the outset mm-hmm. you yep. know she's isolated you know his legs are awful yeah mm-hmm. and it's just like there is no getting out like yeah yeah, and I was like power reading this book to finish it for today, and uh, I felt like I wanted to put it down and walk yeah. away, yeah. and I was like, I can't. I'm exactly like Paul Sheldon. <laughs> uh, any other any other uh, cemetery jaunts we want to take? I'm pretty good with the cemetery nice. as it is. Well, the sky is parting, and floating down from the heavens is a thing we like to call the word processor of the gods. And we're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here... You hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, what the, the fuck you hear me doing in here when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. 
think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? This is the section where we talk about our favorite passages, our favorite bits of writing, the moments when Stephen King uh, elevates beyond Paul Sheldon and writes something that is <laughs> truly beautiful. Um, I actually loved right in the beginning. I thought the pilings metaphor was really, Love the pilings. Was really powerful. And it really, it really worked for me because I think that whenever I think about, I can't remember where I read this, but the idea of exposed bone is always really uh, unnerving and, and, and painful for me to read or think about. And I guess the pilings metaphor is sort of the way the water came in and out and these, uh, these bits of wood, it always reminded me of exposed bone. And that's some, and so for me, it's like, it's like a very dry pain and that's something that is, uh, is horrifying to me. So yeah, that was one that stood out to me right at the beginning. I only had three and okay. one was the pilings. Yeah. Um, the other one is on page 352 of my edition, just the line, in the dark he thought with his skin. Yeah. Oh, I, thought, yeah. I thought that was Loved a great, that. That's a in great ca- line. like just saying like how you feel when you're scared in the dark. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my third one was on page 34, um, which gets it again, the debasement that we were talking about. Um, he didn't want to think about it because just living it was hard enough. He didn't want to think about it because whenever he did unpleasant images intervened, the way she went blank, the way she made him think of idols and stones, and now the way the yellow plastic floor bucket had sped toward his face like a crashing moon. Thinking of those things would not change his situation was in fact worse than not thinking at all. But once he turned his mind to Annie Wilkes and his position here in her house, they were the thoughts that came crowding out all others. His heart would start to beat too fast, mostly in fear, but partly in shame too. He saw himself putting his lips to the rim of the yellow floor bucket, saw the rinse water with its film of soap and the rag floating in it, saw these things but drank anyway, never hesitating a bit. He would never tell anyone about that, assuming he ever got out of this, and he supposed he might try to lie about it to himself, but he would never be able to do it. Hmm. Who else has something? I have one. And and a lot of my favorite stuff of of this book, again, just goes into all the sort of writer notions. Mm -hmm. They're the insights of a writer. And I loved on page 293 um, when he writes, why couldn't it have happened to him? Because writers remember everything, Paul, especially the hurts. Strip a writer to the buff, point to the scars, and he'll tell you the story of each small one. From the big ones, you get novels, not amnesia. A little talent is a nice thing to have if you want to be a writer. But the only real requirement is that ability to remember the story of every scar. Art, consistent, art consists of the persistence of memory. I and just that like that's too. something like I oh, literally man. have that open right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I just I love that. And then we're back in misery because I thought that some of the passages in that were pretty good. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going on page 173. Here was the church. She turned Mary up the lane, which ran beside it, shivering at the ghostly sound of the wind playing along the eaves. She had a moment to wonder why such a holy place as a church should seem so frightening after dark, and then realized it was not the church; it was the errand. He's the king. He, listen to every one of these sections in the past, you know, two years that we've been doing this. And I always will point out like the more natural surroundings yeah. that King can paint. Yes. I just love them. Like that, those are my, some of my favorite sections from him for yeah. sure. And I thought he really leaned heavily on that with like their ride into the cemetery. Cause I, that I definitely felt as if I was there, even though this is just a, you know, a bullshit book right, 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 right. in the movie. Yeah. He had those breaks to almost observe the landscape around the cabin. And, and those were like these moments of beauty, you know, in the midst of this, um, I had one throwaway line that similar, uh, I, I think I really liked it instilled, um, kind of a normally happy thing with a sort of feckin' grossness. Uh, it's Annie is bringing him, um, ice cream sundaes mm. and 
Annie had come in with two giant dishes of vanilla ice cream, a can of Hershey's chocolate syrup, a pressure can of Ready Whip, and a jar in which maraschino cherries, red as heart's blood, floated like biology specimens. Love that. I just loved that line, yeah. and I'm like, yep, never going to look at maraschino cherries any other way. Great. I had one little line that I thought was great. Um, it's early on. Uh he says he thought of pushing his hand through that smile and encountering nothing but flexible darkness. Mm-hmm. Like I thought, I thought that was a really cool image. This book is not like purple at all. No, like, it's intentionally very um, blunt and like not stylized. And mm-hmm. I like that about it. Um, but it does mean that like my word processor section is very sparse. <laughs> right. I have another one. I, I just thought this was a neat little section. It conjures a great image. Uh, it's very Kingian to me, but uh he says he felt nothing at all. He supposed a man who had just cut his hand off in a power saw might feel this same species of nothing as he stood regarding his spouting wrist with dull mm-hmm. surprise. I just love that image. I really liked on page 13. Well, lucky 13. Uh, <laughs> she relaxed, smiled, the crevice closed. Summer flowers nodded cheerfully once again. And this is the line. He thought of pushing his hand through that smile and I encountering nothing that. but flexible darkness. Did you really just say yeah, that? Oh my god! <laughs> I literally just—he was read trying that. to find it while I was you were to find saying it. That's it. the thing. Because I'm scanning. Th- the thing is, like, I put the, my notes in here and I just mark things like uh, word pro- like WP, and I could not find a WP for the life of me. So I was like really in deep thought. Um, uh, and mostly, I never listened to you. Well, on this the rat man forgive you this time. Yeah. Uh, any other? Any other uh, word processors? That we want to share? I have one. Bring it. Okay. One last one from me. Um, Page 215. He's super high. Paul is. Um, Now the light in the room did not look dull. It looked marvelously pure, marvelously full of its own gray and eldritch charm. He could imagine cranes half-glimpsed in gunmetal mist standing in one-legged silence beside upland lakes in that light. Could imagine the mica flecks and rocks jutting from spring grasses and upland meadows shining with the shaggy glow of glazed window glass in that light. Could imagine elves shucking their busy selves off to work in lines under the dew-soaked leaves of early ivy in that light. Oh boy, are you stoned, Paul thought and giggled faintly. I, I like everything except for the elves bit. I'm like, okay, you know. But up until that, I was like, oh, this is really rhythmic and nice. And like, yeah. Yeah, it is really rhythmic. I, I got one more. I got one more. Yeah. Uh, he thought of pushing his hand through that smile and kind of. <laughs> No, I've just, I, got, I actually got, I got the light section. Yeah, that would, that, that would be great. No, no, I have, I do have one more and it ties back into uh, a passage. One of my favorite passages in any Stephen King's writing is in The Shining when he details how slowly the hotel just becomes more and more isolated, isolated and they're just standing there and they're watching everyone leave. And I've referred to this section millions of times in this podcast, but it's this one, rem- like this one reminds me of, of that's the way that he's able to show that sort of distance and that sense of place. And it's on page uh, 13. I'm just joking. I'm not going to that one again, but no, it's on, it's on page 351. Uh, Annie laughed. She climbed the stairs laughing harder and harder. There was a click as the lights went out and Annie went on laughing and he told himself he wouldn't scream, wouldn't beg that he was past all that, but the damp wildness of the shadows and the bottom, the boom of her laughter was too much. And he shrieked for her not to do this to him, not to leave him, but she went on laughing and there was a click as the door was shut and her laughter was muted, but the laughter was still there. Her laughter was on the other side of the door where, where there was light and then the lock clicked 
and another door closed, and her laughter was even more muted, but still there. And another lock clicked, and a bolt slammed, and her laughter was going away. Her laughter was outside, and even after she had started the cruiser up, backed out, put the chain across the driveway, and driven away, he thought he could still hear her. He thought he could still hear her laughing and laughing and laughing. And that, that use of repetition, oof, yeah, love it. That's mm-hmm. when the repetition goes great for it. So. Well, it makes the locks feel real, too. Yeah. Yeah. Because then you really get a sense of, like, he's fucked. And the the dis- and just, like, you start wondering, like, is he actually even hearing any of this stuff at this right. point? It's, it's just the same all thing of, like, yearning for something that you know has been lost when she shuts the door. And he's like, ah, yes, the light is behind that yes. door. <laughs> and I will not have access to the light. Yeah. <laughs> it's just such a good setup to, like, what is going to actually happen after yeah. that. It's, like, almost just the terror is being built so well there. So Well, I don't know about you, Mike, but that section made me hungry. I think it's time for a serving of pound cake. After all you've been taught, everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray, ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, mama. You like him. You really like him, mama. Come on over to the table, everybody. It's time to carve yourself a nice hefty slice of pound cake. Oh, it looks like you were in the kitchen. I was leave your room. Yes, and uh it is here in this kitchen where we discuss some of King's maybe bluer moments, some of the sillier uh, moments where our favorite author kind of stumbles uh, when he talks about, uh, let's just say, usually sex, but other <laughs> things too. And poop. And poop. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of poop. Uh, there's pee in this one, though. Mm-hmm. A lot of piss in this one. And um, But I think that my first one just made me laugh was... Because this is King and he can't not talk about a woman's breasts when she enters a room. <laughs> um, uh, just the way he described um, uh, Annie as having a large but unwelcoming swell of bosom. I just found that that uh, that pairing very funny. If I can follow that train of thought, the same paragraph. Yeah. Um, when he talks about there's no defined roundness of hip or buttock or even calf below the endless succession of wool skirts. Her body was big but not generous. There was a feeling about her of clots and roadblocks rather than welcoming orifices or yes. even open spaces, areas of hiatus, <laughs> which just implies that, like, a woman's body should always be generous and open. Yes. <laughs> I like to leave my door open for strangers. And then I, I really like the one on 52 and 53. Um from some final stronghold of sanity and evaluative clarity, the rational Paul Sheldon had thought, and with that intro, you think he's going to think something like kind of cool. Uh-huh. <laughs> she looks like a widow who just got fucked after a 10 year dry spell. <laughs> yes, I forgot that line. It's like, God damn it. Like, you. Oh. I remember there was a moment like that in Pet Cemetery, too, where he had like a really like beautiful lead in, and then it was just like, and then he whipped out his boner or something. You know, it's like. <laughs> Hey, you've got you've got two fans of the Sex and Pet Cemetery. <laughs> I love That's the true. Sex and Pet Cemetery. That's true. I remember that. Uh, there was that section where he talks about how much he hated misery, and so he wrote. He like yes. yeah. He sent like a uh, a little short book about misery banging a dog like to everybody. <laughs> Misery's I, hobby. Yeah, and I was yes. like, I was like, yeah, I can see how that's funny, but I don't know. Like, if somebody sent me a book about yeah. a woman fucking a dog, like I would just think it was kind of creepy. Yeah, <laughs> like, I'd be like, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it was like to closest friends and <laughs> yeah. relatives. I know it was just very strange. Like that's not something I would necessarily find funny. I would just be like, that's really weird that you would write that. Uh, but yeah, how about you, Laura? Um, let's see. I wrote misery bestiality fanfic in my notes. So <laughs> covered that, um, page two fifty. I, I wrote, uh, 
edge lord underneath this. <laughs> um, he's he's again he's talking about the uh, the the gotta, which is like you gotta know what happens next mm-hmm. and chasing that, um, which we've discussed already. But toward the bottom of page two fifty in my blue book. The gata, nasty as a hand job in a sleazy bar, fine as a fuck from the world's most talented call girl. Oh boy, it was bad, and oh boy, it was good, and oh boy, in the end, it didn't matter how rude it was or how crude it was, because in the end, it was just like the Jacksons said on that record. Don't stop till you get enough. Oh, yeah. <laughs> don't stop till you get... I, I don't know. I just was like, I, I was like, come on. Like, I just can't do this. Like, I, yeah. that was one of the... I had to put the book but down You feel like that is at Steve at his most like, hey, yeah. Right, right. He always does that sort of thing. Like, like uh, almost like the next time you're driving sort of like call to action sort of dialogue there. And I think like... On page three thirty nine, when he talks, like, I already mentioned the man gland thing, but <laughs> even like what he how he ends that, and, and it's like, don't you use that uh, f word around me? And he said, I was raised better, even if you weren't. You're lucky I didn't cut off your man gland. I thought of it, you know. He looked at her. His stomach felt like the inside of an ice maker. I know you did, Annie. He said softly. Her <laughs> her eyes widened, and just, for just a moment, she looked both startled and guilty. Naughty Annie instead of nasty Annie. Like <laughs> it's just so Missy lame. Annie, you're nasty again. Yeah, oh, like, man. Uh, and then uh, he called, he like refers to her as a pig, um, yeah. Yeah. which is the wink wink uh, sort of thing. So I just remember when he was talking about misery, he couldn't, he just kept going to that bitch. Okay. What does the <laughs> yeah, bitch the do bitch. now? Yeah. She ever grave bitch that here. bitch. Yeah, like, <laughs> she sounds like Chucky. I killed yeah. that bitch. <laughs> yeah, I know. It it's, was just, <laughs> it's prime time. Bitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, they're, they're, uh, it's not pound cake and it's not exactly misery, but the whole like cockadoo-y and sort of like sort yeah. of like country Dirty accent like, got just so it got very cloying after a while. Sure. It was I guess like Maybe I get it. She's I get it. She you you think she's uh you know a cute country she's folk. folksy. Like, she folksy. I did like when she would drop it and suddenly just say like fuck or whatever. Yeah. Like that was always like oh no yeah. shit's getting real. Um yeah I also had to suck my book at the oh, end I'm, yep. that's so awful King is so bad about like when the when the hero finally like gets one on the on the yeah. villain, he always ha- makes him say something really stupid, like some kind of like one liner. Mm-hmm. The worst is in desperation. Like des- that's a. I mean, obviously we're not there yet, so I won't spoil. But great book, uh, or at least I really like it. But the man, the moment at the end with the hero is like it, it's a line that just ruins the entire like edge or like uh, the tension of it all. But but yeah, and uh, it drives me crazy. Any other um, uh, bits of pound cake here? Any crumbs? There, yes. Um, 337, we just get, I think this is a pretty classic bit of King Pound Cake. Um, he could smell, what? Oh, good to bed. Yeah, okay. He could smell the sweat of her recent exertions, and while he actually liked the smell of fresh perspiration, he associated it with work, hard effort, (laughs) things he respected. This smell was secretive and nasty, like old sheets thick with dried cum. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Ah, yeah. Things he respected. Thick with it. Yeah, Jesus, how much were you were you coming on those sheets? <laughs> yeah. Well, he's really into cummy sheets. There's a story in, is it, I think in Nightmares and Dreamscapes about a woman, or was it in Skeleton Crew? I can't remember. There's like a, a it's about a housekeeper and who becomes obsessed oh, yes. with like, oh, God. With, the sh- with the sheets of a guy's room sheets It's cleaning. racist and bad and yeah, gross. Yeah, it's so bad. And they're, it's like, she's like licking the cum off the sheets. Mm. Oh, it's so gross. No. Uh, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> any other uh, bits of pound cake here? Um. I've got a crumb. It's very much a crumb on page 252 of my blue book. Um, there's several things, one of which is the masturbation is writing this like masturbation line. But mm-hmm. the line that bothered me most on this page um, is an aside. He's saying something and he says, uh, 
he knew this, I'm sorry, he knew this by now, just as sexually acute men know which dates will put out at the end of the evening and which ones will not. Just the phrase sexually acute men. Oh, um, yeah. Just also, th- like, yeah. you never know. Yeah. So <laughs> shut the fuck up. Sexually acute. Um, awesome. Well, I got to tell you guys, my belly is full. It's, mm. it's, it's just overflowing. So yum, yum, yum. I think it's time to walk off some of those pounds in a place we like to call King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is. Welcome to King's Dominion, a magical land where us nerds uh, do everything we've kind of made fun of earlier by dissecting and uh, deconstructing uh, certain Easter eggs within this book. So uh, I think the obvious one, where does this book take place? A sidewinder. Yeah? yeah? And why do we know? Uh, oh, oh, we're doing rampage. Oh, we're doing rampage. <laughs> Sidewinder, Colorado, which is where um, old Halloran has to go to get up to the Overlook. Yeah. So they mention the Overlook in this book. In what book is the Overlook in? Uh, the Shining. Oh, okay. Uh, the so. Shining. The Humbling. The Shining. <laughs> So we, so we do know that this takes place in uh, the same universe as uh, Jack Torrance. Yeah. Literally only 10 years Well, the apart. hitchhiker says that he was, or um, does she say it? Yeah, she yeah, says he's yeah. crazy. And... Yeah, that the hitchhiker was like wanting to write a book about the Overlook and what had happened there. So it's a really direct reference to The Shining, which is pretty neat. Um, uh, and then I also have, I have a few crazy ones, but uh, Mike, I think you and I both both talked about this, but like the idea that Paul calls his readers constant readers, mm-hmm. just yep. like King does, I found to be an interesting. He references uh, I, where it's from, though, isn't it from something? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Victorian, I think he does. Victorian yeah. literature. He's, it was like a Victorian archetype in I don't know whatever little hand little half penny books. I think yeah. that's what they called them formally. Yeah, I, I just think that uh, it's always going to be associated with King for me, especially the capital C, capital R, you know. So. Well, I know one uh, capital K, which is uh, Mrs. Casper. Yeah, I wrote that. It was also Mrs. on page 119. Oh. Uh, yeah, I feel like that was really intentional. But uh, yeah, so he says, uh, it was a summer vacation. His father was working. His mother gone to spend the day in Boston with uh, Mrs. Casper from across the street. Yeah. Do we know if they ever lived in Boston? The Casprack family? Yeah. No, because like, he, I mean, when, I when Eddie flies back, he goes to New York, if I recall. Yeah, but I wonder where his family moved. Did it say, did he leave Derry in it? Like after the events of when they were kids? Because I know some of them moved. He moved, he leaves, uh, he leaves Derry. I mean, Eddie, de- well, yeah, yeah, I mean, but did his family move? Like, did they move to Boston? And that's who he's saying now. Hmm. It's, uh, it's interesting. But yeah, I, I caught that too. So I'm like, hey, like Eddie's aunt or something. So. Or Meyer the Hog. Meyer the Hog. Ugh. Hate that um on page 21 yeah this is a little ridiculous but he says also the goddamn uh tunnel uh made him uh nervous and it was like he you there's like that you know the tunnel from the stand yeah and he also references the lincoln tunnel at one point later on in yeah. the book so i this just said seems as if it's a little too much i think uh oh putting there here's some i got uh okay there's a woman named soames at Doc Soames. Stand Doc Soames. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I got I got a really crazy one too. Like so on page one seventy eight, she had seen children in similar postures by the railway line listening for the trains. Uh stand by me, the body. <laughs> Wow, um, it's actually Blaine. So yeah, <laughs> in the misery book, uh, d- uh, just the fact that they were digging up her grave, uh, pet cemetery. Hello. Mm. <laughs> um, on page sixty-one, uh, chapter nineteen. <laughs> um, do you actually have one? No, that was okay. mine. On page one fifty-nine, in misery's return, um, 
Why, didn't Duncan Fromsley see old man Patterson not two days after his funeral, glowing just as white as marsh fire? Which was just what it probably was, Joffrey thought. Marsh fire, plus whatever came out of old Fromsley's last bottle. What other book do we see Marsh Fire in, or at least mentioned in? Pet uh, Cemetery. Pet Cemetery. Well, yeah. also Beverly Marsh, uh, My Fire. Hello. That's a room two three seven. Yeah. Uh, I would say this is a small one, but at the end, his editor's name is Charlie Merrill. In real life, mm. his editor is Chuck Verrill. Uh, Ace Merrill. Uh, Ace Merrill. Hello. Also. Maybe he has Hello. a brother who became an editor. Okay, Duh. this is a real one. Two fifty nine. Unless his assessment of Annie Wilkes was totally off the beam. Yeah. Oh yeah. That I wrote that. And point. there is a reference to th- their mention of uh, gunslingers in Hollywood too. Yeah, so. he mentions the word gunslinger a few times in the book, yeah. which was interesting. Um, Misery Chastain, Jessica Chastain is going to be playing <laughs> Beverly. Hello. Oh. Hello. <laughs> yeah, it was prescient. Uh, there's a, also a prescient one here. Uh. In the book Dark Half, um, the barrel pencils play a huge role. They're not black warriors. Like he mentions black warriors here. They're black beauties in uh, Dark Half, but they play a very big role in the story. So he clearly was in pencil mode when he wrote this. So do you ever get in pencil so, mode yeah, as a writer? Co- cocaine mode and then you go right over to pencil I mode. I don't write longhand. <laughs> Mike, it looks like you have more. It, it is interesting that so like I usually consult sometimes the complete Stephen King universe, A Guide to the Worlds of Stephen King by Stanley Wider, Christopher Golden and Hank Wagner, which I ah, mentioned earlier before. From Breaking Bad. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, in the Misery Trivia, they they mentioned the Casbrack uh trivia but they don't mention the most obvious king's dominion here which is the shining right? really like, that's which a is gross that's oversight strange. right yeah <laughs> so say an overlook hello any other any other king dominions here i couldn't find any other ones yeah i feel like that's a good that's more than we get for some though yeah that is. i it's, feel like we're entering though kind of the uh the maybe not the golden years but we're entering somewhat into the golden years of of king's dominion because like in a lot of the earlier books, we were it was all room two three seven because he he hadn't really started merging his his worlds yet. But sometimes now, you'd get like a really cool one that was like a call forward. Yeah, like there's a lot of singing rose shit right. in his early books. Right, but yeah, I think with Talisman was when it really started. Like post Talisman is when he really started kind of merging the worlds, which I think is really fun. So, so yeah, um, I think it's time to move to our final thoughts and nose ratings. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. He said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. Welcome to our final thoughts. This is the section You're so welcoming where we on offer. this episode. <laughs> I'm feeling very polite today, uh, maybe because I don't want to piss off Annie Wilkes. So, um, so yeah, I think uh, I think let's all go around and say how we feel. I'll start. I think. <laughs> oh boy, just no gap in between any. <laughs> Um, okay, Mr. Smartsy Pants. I really like this book. I think that there's a lot to love about it. It's and I, I just I feel like in the I feel like it's a really cool turning point for King. I feel like this was like post it, we're entering into a new phase of King, which is cool because hey, it's a new year. Am I right? And so I feel like it's we're entering into a new phase. Uh, he's exploring newer themes. He's exploring smaller uh, situations. I mean, obviously posted, he probably wanted to scale things back a bit. Although having said that, we are about to move on to Tommyknockers. But after that, things start so to excited. scale back again. I know Tommyknockers is going to be fun. But um, but I think that we're seeing a more meta king. We're seeing a king who is um, kind of 
unable to divorce himself personally and his level of success and where he's at in his career from the work he's making. So I think that there's going to be a lot of, I think the way the history impacts each book this year is really going to influence the way we're going to read it and look at it. So I think misery is cool in that it really starts that, that sort of trend. And it's also, I think uh, a very iconic story and just one that obviously has persevered and it has one of his most memorable villains, I think. And uh, you know, it's, I feel like people, when I, somebody just posted on our uh, Facebook page, uh, some some they took like the Sims, they went to the Sims and they made Sims of all the villains in Stephen King world. Not all of them, but mm-hmm. a selection of them. And like the very first one was Annie. So I feel like it's a it's a villain that a lot of people associate with King. And and she is a really wonderful creation. I think rereading this, I was very struck by it. And and, it, you know, I like that it's trim. Uh, King said that this is a book where he actually took. Uh, notes and advice from people. He said he did not do that with Tommy Knockers, which is why it's like 800 pages. <laughs> yeah. But he said that the reason this book is like 300, well, I think the initial printing was uh, 320 pages or something. Now they read longer, but, um, but he, you know, he goes, I, I was very, he's like, I took a lot of notes on this one. I was, I was very receptive to feedback on this one. And you can see that because it moves along really well. And uh, I find just, I find a lot of the philosophical musings and the writing kind of patter uh, to be, um, I don't know, really intriguing, really fascinating. So I am going to give this book four bright red Pennywise clown noses out of five. So, Mike, do you want to go next? Sure. Like I said, I think this is a, a very metaphorical book. Mm-hmm. And for that alone, this is intriguing to me. Uh, my favorite part of doing this podcast is always trying to align where Stephen King's head was at, where, uh, um, you know, Basement Jacks, uh, you know, when he goes into each and every book. And this one was a delight for me. I really got to, I feel like I really got to kind of chew into just who King is as a person. And Mm -hmm. it felt like a prelude to everything that was going to happen in the 90s. It felt like a preamble to his own writing. Uh, So all of the, the sort of technical aspects of what this says about King alone makes this a highlight for me a major major highlight uh, i really love the interplay between annie and paul i was this is absolutely a page turner in every you know in every way and shape or form and i never was really bored even during the parts that i i had to really kind of say that, that sagged for me um was never really sagging there wasn't really any point where i honestly was like oh god i gotta go back to this no i I actually was really intrigued and so much so that i was like finding myself reading it in like really like weird bizarre times like like last night when we like left the restaurant Mm -hmm. it was like pitch black outside i still like was just like sitting there with my phone just like as i was walking home like trying to read sections of it because i just wanted to know what happened um also needed to get it done before the podcast but (laughs) i do think that sort of uh, that intensity and that addiction really goes into exactly what he's saying here with even just like the little chapters that uh you know annie wants and all the little um uh, movie chapters that she talks about in her own past and for that i just think it's a very smart book i think it's really uh i think he he nails exactly what he set out to do um and i think it's as like you said it's a really good transitional book for king as a writer uh so for that i i i'm gonna give it four and a half actually i think Ooh. this is a really strong solid book and i would actually put this really high up in in uh his Ooh. nice <laughs> no you know, you know french follow yeah, right? that <laughs> <laughs> Um, I definitely echo the thoughts about the intensity. Um, one thing I didn't tell you guys is that I read this book in two days. Nice. <laughs> I finished Whoa. it yesterday on the bus over here. Um, and it did not sag at all. It was breakneck pace throughout. I 
had read this really great interview with Stephen King that I think we linked to on our Facebook, um, although I didn't read the whole thing because you need a subscription to the Paris Review. But he characterizes his novels as being either innies or outies, like belly buttons. Mm. And this one is definitely an innie. It's a limited cast. (laughs) It's introspective. It's about interiors, both Mm -hmm. in terms of the room and the people. Um, and I love it when he does that. It's what I love about Cujo. It's what I love about The Shining. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what I especially love about Gerald's Game. And again, I think this book is a first attempt at what Gerald's Game will ultimately be more successful at. Nice. Um, both in terms of its politics <laughs> and in terms of what goes on in the book. Um, both deal with people strapped to a bed who have to figure out a means to escape to escape from an impossible situation. And I think when he wrote Gerald's Game, he was just a little bit more conscientious. It, to me, is um, more scary in a cerebral way, whereas this one really fucked with me on a physical level. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, you know, kudos for that. But a rating of 4 or 4.5 to me is, like, near perfect, right? And I, I think I'm going to have to go 3.5 out of 5 bright red Pennywise clown noses just because I was so distracted by some of the poor <laughs> sensitivity sure, choices. Sure. And um, and because the thoughts on writing were personally grating to me at times, gotcha. which, which will happen with Stephen King and yeah. me going forward. Although that's not to say I take a lot of inspiration from him as, a, as an authorial figure. Um, so this was really an experience, especially in two days. 3.5 out of 5 bright red Pennywise clown noses. Nice. Laura? Well, I'm going to mirror a lot of what Mel just said. I also read it in two days, which, as I said before, was an intense experience um, because I found it incredibly claustrophobic and disturbing. Um, and I couldn't put it down because I had to finish it. Uh, so for those same reasons, I, I did I did enjoy it. I ended up liking the meta nature of it as a reflection on writing and you know there there was just something about it like i said on a rhythmic level on a pulsing level that i oh, gross i'm sorry <laughs> uh, uh, that i found compelling and i you know whether or not i liked paul sheldon i liked um i just liked the experience of it and uh my main thought was that i was really sad that we didn't get to see Paul take Misery the Pig home as a pet. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. To set up the sequel, Misery 2, Pig in the City. <laughs> um, yes. That was my main my main beef, as it were, with this book. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to repeat what y'all said. I, I think you captured it eloquently. Um, for many of the same reasons as Mel did, I'm giving it 3.5 uh, out of 5, right? Yeah. Yep. Bright red shiny shiny bright red pennywise clown noses did i get all of those adjectives in the correct you might have even added yeah. one yeah that, that that was pretty good did i add one well danny used to always was add it, one too was it plump yeah. yes Is yeah we plump? should add like turgid <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> what was what what would dan always add dan always had some funny white wed white wed he always adds the affectation to mm, it uh white anyways noses. so that averages out to uh probably what like a like I think I'm going to go. I, I, think, I think we'll keep this boys girls with uh, in terms of ratings. I'm going to go 4.0 now. Ooh. Really? You're downgrading? I'm going to downgrade. <laughs> Maybe you should <laughs> stand by your here's rating. The thing. I gave The Dead Zone 5. Right. And that is my favorite book of his. I gave Pet Cemetery 5. 4.5. I, I did criticize a lot on this episode. 4.5 makes no sense. You're four, a generous four, nose 4 makes sense. All right. That means 3.75 is the average if you both gave 4 and we both gave 3.5. Boom. That seems Speaking right. Speaking of noses, stay tuned for our next Needful Tweets episode because I will be giving my preemptive 5 <laughs> nose uh, review of Aquaman. 
uh, which I know you've all been waiting for for man probably like eight or nine months now. I know you guys are very excited to hear my five nose review of Aquaman. Even I have yet to see it, but I did promise I would give it five noses. And you're gonna so. go see it. I'm gonna go see it. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely gonna see it. Um, love Jason Momoa. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but before we get to that, uh, we're gonna be back next week with our an episode devoted to the film Misery, Rob Reiner's film starring Jimmy Kahn. Jimmy Kahn. Yeah, do a Jimmy Kahn impression. Hey, we're gonna be back next week. We can go to the theater. <laughs> get some popcorn. I, I you know, I don't. Your I'm not face really is big like fr- Robert De Niro. I'm not really a big popcorn guy. I. What can I say? Just give me a soda. <laughs> And Kathy Bates, obviously. Love Kathy uh, Very Bates. excited. We're also going to talk about the theatrical adaptations of this work because I think that's sort of a unique uh, a unique as- aspect because there's been a lot of theatrical adaptations of King, but this is one of the more successful ones. Like my buddy, in a single room. Yeah, one yeah. Room. Mm-hmm. yeah one my, room. my buddy works at um, a theater in Cincinnati that just produced it like a couple months ago. I was actually trying to get out there for it, but alas. We should try to get him on the pod. Uh, he doesn't like Stephen King. All right, well, never mind. So, um, <laughs> but uh, so yeah, we'll be back next week for that. But you guys are probably going to want to start reading the Tommyknockers now because let's just say it's a long one, mm-hmm. and it's you know even Stephen King says it's not good. But I stand by the fact that when I was a child, I adored that book, and I'm excited to reread it. Well, we're going to uh, be knocking some Toms uh, in February. February. Mm-hmm. So gear up for that. And um, anything else you guys want to add? Laura, where can people find uh, you, your work, uh, or anything of that nature? Um, I'm really bad at social media and that I like to hide behind pseudonyms um, for fear. But uh, you can find me at, at underalls on Twitter, like the things you wear under your pants, at underalls. Um, yeah, and that's where if I'm posting, I'm going to make my short film public soon. I'm going to post it there. No one will watch it. That's fine. I know this. You can do that there. You're very funny on Twitter. I was going to say, you're very funny on Instagram stories. Oh, thank you. Oh, my Instagram stories. I've been thinking of making, I realize my Insta is a Finsta, and I'm going to make an, a Rinsta for my filmmaker persona. Um, so maybe I'll make some of those public. No, nobody nice. cares. I'll stop talking. I, no, I, 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 I think care. it's great. I know what all thank those you. phrases mean. because Are I you have still writing niece. for sad horoscopes? Um, yeah, yeah. There's an account called Sorrowscopes and that has uh, at, on Twitter and uh, some of those are mine. Are you, were you doing those as well? No, no, but I like the account. Yeah, it's it's fun. And um, I, I've recently become a contributor for The Onion. Yes. So I've, nice. had, I've only had like two things published and it's for their video team and soon to be podcasty kind of stuff. Um, so I'm I'm around. I'm about. I'll stop talking. I'll stop. No, keep, you're fine. <laughs> I hate talking about myself. Follow Laura on Twitter and Instagram. Her Finsta and the Rinsta and the Ginsta. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all good stuff. Um, and then Mel, people can find you at melcastle.com or at melcastle on Twitter. And Castle is spelled K-A-S-S-E-L. So M-E-L-K-A-S-S-E-L. Uh, Mike Sorry. and I are both very bad at Twitter, but we're both on it. Yeah, if you kidding. want to see self-deprecating tweets and uh, fun gifs of uh, random Foco, Funko Pops, <laughs> Foco. Sometimes we plan to watch movies at the same time. Yeah, we do. <laughs> it's true. You can follow me at Randall Colburn. You can follow him at Michael Rothman. And uh, you can follow us at the Losers Club. Um, I can't remember. What's our Twitter handle? Oh, Lord. I think it's Losers Club Pod. Yeah, Losers, Club, Losers Pod. Club Pod. We're also on Instagram. We're also on Facebook. Like I said, fresh content fresh and vivid content hello so vivid yes so vivid uh thank you guys so much for listening we'll see you all next week so uh long Long days days and and pleasant nights good job laura
Consequence Podcast Network.